Hello and welcome to episode 214 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Shane here in Denver, Colorado, and with me on the line from Chicago, Illinois, it's the one and only godfather, Dave Harbarger. I'm here now, and I'm also here in the future, and you're here in the future, but you won't be there in the future that I'm in. Is that right, Shane? Do I have that right? Yeah, it's it's our recent past and also future. I'm feeling like Marty McFly. My hand had disappeared. <laughs> Marty! Shane! It's about your kids! We did the podcast in nonlinear segments this week. <laughs> Shane! Your segments! We're- you got to do something about your segments. So we're doing the thing we hinted at when you know Stanislav went on his overseas journey and some segmented content. So this week we're trying something new. It's Dave and Stanislav doing some content. It's me and now regular guest host Devin O'Donnell, aka Doomwake, doing some content. We'll piece it together in the order that we think makes the most sense, I suppose. But well, this week we're just—it's what? What do you think? Well, we're gonna we're gonna do it this. So we're gonna do a little talk from you and me. It's gonna be a little talk from you and me, Shane, right here to set everything up, and then it's gonna be me and Stan talking about our recent experimentations. Two surprising things: one, Stan now likes Pioneer. Oh, he likes stay, Pioneer. Stay tuned to hear him talking about that. Spoilers. Spoilers. Here are the decks that made him finally decide that he kind of likes Pioneer. And then B, I get a little wild in Modern. I play two pretty weird decks. Uh, I play Mardu Calibrated Blast, a aspiring spike list that he 5-0'd with recently that I thought was interesting. And then I play Mono White Humans in Modern. Oh, nice. Uh, as designed and piloted by Hank the Obese, Magic Online player who has been doing well in challenges with it lately. Let's see what happens. This is exciting. And then, you know, even though we are ostensibly a, a mostly modern podcast, uh, Doomwake and I talk about Golgari Sacrifice, a newer up-and-coming deck in Pioneer that takes advantage of some awesome new cards from Phyrexia All Will Be One. So... You learn about that deck. Learn about what Stan's been doing. Learn about what you've been doing. I'm I'm hyped. This is fun. Like now I get to be excited about hearing your stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's like I was off last. I mean, I was off last week, and I was off of half of this week. It's a it's a dream situation for me. Yeah, and my stuff is weird, buddy. Wait until you see these deck lists. Oh my gosh, I'm 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 very amped. Oh yeah, so um, I was off last week because I was on a, a business trip, uh, a conference in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And then I, I stuck around in Salt Lake City for a couple of days with my wife. We uh, we hung out there, got to see a uh, friend of the show, Lou, there for a couple of times. That was really nice. Got to see the the lovely people of Salt Lake. It's a it's a pretty pretty good way to spend some days. I'll tell you what, I like Salt Lake. There you go. You ever been there, Dave? Yeah, I've done a photo shoot in Salt Lake City before. Well, when's the last time you were there? Two thousand four. Probably. Oh my gosh, that's so long maybe. ago. Yeah. Well, that has very little to do with my recent situation there. So, but uh. <laughs> Anyway, before we get deep into more great content like this, it's time yeah. to do some housekeeping. Oh, the housekeeping, yes. Yeah. All right. Dave, we have four new patrons. I know. Thank you so much. Four new citizens of the Dive Down Nation. We've got Anthony G. We've got Paul. We've got Christopher C. And we've got Mitch Flow 52. Uh, maybe they were born in 1952. 
We'll find out. We can only hope. We've got no increased tiers, but thank you all four of you for uh, signing your papers, becoming citizens of the Dive Down Nation. We appreciate that direct support. Help helps keep us going. Help keeps uh, the you know the podcast fun and all the little things we got to pay for add up surprisingly quickly. We do have a new review this week, and that is from our friend of the pod, Oralox. I think we actually talked about Oralox last week because we have one of our paper modern camera events going on that Oralox is always putting, uh, helping us coordinate, or actually coordinating completely independently of us. We appreciate that ongoing work, uh, keeping the community going. But Oralox left a really lovely review the other week uh, saying, take the deepest dive into magic through the lens of a casual spike. The first part, maybe not so much. The second part, I definitely agree with. It is the lens of the casual spike. Um, yeah, we appreciate uh, these kind words words and your ongoing engagement and support of the the dive down nation or locks and if you'd like to support the dive down via patreon you can check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down check out the tiers get some swag all of that kind of stuff of course once you come in for a dollar a week you get access to our discrete definitive discord server you can also support us via buying merch at thedivedown.com slash store. Go check out shirts, fanny packs, and hats as you wish. Um, and if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can check out some of our partners, Mana Traders, you know, the card rental service we've been using for years and years. I couldn't have played the weird decks that I played this week without Mana Traders, Shane. Manatraders.com, <laughs> use code the dive down 10 to get 10% off your first two months of a Mana Traders subscription. You can also check out, uh, get paper cards, get a discount at paper cards from our friends at Energy Gaming. Use code DIVE8 from Energy. And then finally, there's Barrister and Man, longtime supporters, partners, friends, uh, smell muses of us at the Dive Down Nation, Will and the team at Barrister and Man. If you want to get some fragrance support, some shaving gear, at barristerman.com. The code is the dive down 2023. Now last week, Oh, you'll get 15% off your first order, by the way. Now last week, Stan said it was so great that all of our codes lined up exactly with the percentage <laughs> discounts that we got. I knew that that would not last forever. Turns out forever came much sooner than we thought. Uh, yeah, the so, dive down 2023. That's right. Okay. So with that out of the way, we are going to cut over to me talking with Stan about what we've been up to lately in uh, Pioneer and Modern. Stay with us. Look at us, David. We're finally experimenting with the format of the podcast, recording segments across time zones and continents like we said we would. This is just me, a conversation among friends about what we did this week in magic. Yes. And before we kick off the magic conversation, I actually have a question to ask you, Dave, since I am drinking my big mug of tea to, mm -hmm. to keep me energized through the show. How do you take your tea? And what kind of tea do you like? Iced. Iced tea. Only, please. Black tea. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, my wife is very much an Earl Grey person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yes, other than that, I drink Decaf coffee only. Decaf espresso only. Oh. oh, God. I know it's the weirdest. I love espresso, but a decaf espresso is strange to me. I, I drink iced decaf Americanos every day. Well, good for you, man. It's like muddy water with ice chunks in it. I like Earl Grey, too. Earl Grey is my daytime tea when I'm just like mm -hmm. pounding them, basically. But English breakfast has been my morning and, and nighttime tea. 
when I need a little extra been, kick at night to get through the day. You've been in Manchester for about three months now, and you have breakfast tea at night. <laughs> Things are upside down. What is this? That's right. Things really are upside down today, Dave. I have to tell you, I've, I, I feel like I have a confession to make. I'm a little embarrassed right now. Okay. I'm here for you across the country. Yeah. Remember how you always said that I could tell you anything and you would always love me no matter what? Yeah, of course. Dave, I've been on a bit of a pioneer kick lately. I can't believe it, but I can believe it. And I'm ready to accept you into uh, this format with open arms. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to say about it. I feel like I'm finally kind of understanding what everyone else has been talking about lately. So I'm just going to get into it, if I may. Okay. Yeah. Basically, two critical things happened that got me here where I am today. And probably they're not particularly surprising. But the first one is... Birth. Is the first one birth? Yes. Yes. The birth of my son 19 months ago. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> is that... I meant your own birth, but... Yeah. Well, I don't remember that one as well. Okay. Yeah. Frankly, since I wasn't there, I can't... I guess I was there, but since I have no memory of it... we. Can we be certain that it really ever happened? Man, why don't we remember our own births, man? Whoa, bro. No, the two critical things that happened that got me here today are, one, I finally found some decks that I really like to play, which I think is this very important hump to get over in anyone's progression and and appreciation of any format. Absolutely. So you said more than decks. You said decks more than one, maybe? Deck, parentheses, S. Wow. Okay. Right. The second thing that happened was in playing the format, especially through the lens of a couple different decks, something finally clicked for me that I actually never really understood before that now I think has given me a grasp of this format that was important for me to understand what it really takes to participate in Pioneer in a meaningful and perhaps even profitable way. Profitable, even. Profitable. Emotionally profitable. I see. All right, so let's start with the decks, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited because, you know, I do like Pioneer. Yeah. You've been very Pioneer resistant. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm curious to see where this is going to go. Let's unveil them. I don't think either of these decks will take you by surprise. I wonder if you can guess them. Well, we talked about Elves with Tyvar. Okay, okay. That's one. Are we still on Elves with Tyvar? Well, not with Tyvar, but yeah, we are on Elves, yeah. Okay, okay, Elves. Um... Is the other one potentially creativity? No comment. We'll get to it in a few minutes. Okay. All right. So it's true. I've I've been really, really liking elves. And not just because I've been a fan of elves for years and talk about it on this podcast anytime I get the chance to. But I actually think that the Pioneer Elves deck is legit. And the version that I'm playing is one that has been doing fairly well online in the hands of a streamer and MTGO grinder by the name of Xbox Greg. Shoutouts to Xbox Greg. <laughs> Won a Pioneer Challenge with Elves in February, and that's the list that I had played in paper a couple weeks ago and have been playing online as well. Okay. This deck is real because it does all the things that good Elves decks do in formats where Elves is good. Period. Okay? It is a go-wide aggro deck that uses lords and tokens and one ones and, and other cheap little creatures to get big and, and establish a significant board state. But perhaps most importantly is that it's capable of generating card advantage. And the really fun part is that it has the ability to just combo kill opponents at instant speed, sometimes as early as like turns three or four, 
completely out of nowhere, even on opponent's turn. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And we're not doing it with progenitus. Are we doing it with, uh, we're doing it with uh, shaman then, huh? Shaman of the pack. Or no? Yeah, shaman. What's unique about this deck compared to previous elves decks that I've played in meaningful constructed formats, so I'm not talking about historic, is that the combination of Elvish Warmaster, the David Harbarger lookalike card, your, <laughs> your doppelganger. It's true. I do look like that. Is probably just the best card in this deck, I think, because it single-handedly produces the massive board states that makes elves a go-wide deck, but it also enables just about all of your other winning strategies. Coupled with the new-ish Lord from Dominaria United, Leaf Crown Visionary, which both makes your 1-1s one bigger. It's, it's the only Lord in this deck, in fact. But huh. it's also drawing you a ton of extra gas. And since Leaf Crown Visionary is a green-green card, it's really good with Nykthos as well, which this deck is running. And when you have both of those cards online, the thing that I love about this deck is it just does Glimpse of Nature impressions in Pioneer. Because you're making boatloads of mana and then just playing one drops or two drops or like whatever, they keep drawing you extra cards. And when you have a couple Leaf Crown Visionaries, you're making that much more mana with Nykthos and drawing that many more cards. Sometimes I feel like it only takes two, three turns of having those two pieces in play at the same time, Visionary and Nykthos, to basically set up a kill if your game is actually going a little bit longer and it's you know, grinding into turns five or six. Wait. Visionary and... Interesting. Okay, Leaf Crown Visionary. For some reason, I imagined Elvish Visionary again for a second. Okay, so I'm looking at the card for the first time yes. more closely, just so people, in case they've forgotten. Leaf Crown Visionary, green, green for a 1-1 one, one that says other elves you control get plus one, plus one. And then the, the second line of text says, whenever you cast an elf spell, you may pay green if you do draw a card. And there's the there's the kicker. That's what you're talking about there. That's the kicker. You are just pumping green into that as you cast to just get more gas. Yes, yes. And it's not actual glimpse of nature but nykthos basically makes it effectively that um because mm -hmm. nykthos is doing a guy's cradle impression exactly and then warmaster once again also sets up your very powerful shaman of the pack plays because warmaster un left unchecked is just producing one or two extra bodies per turn if you have multiple warmasters out and you're able to get bodies on your opponent's turn with either Court of Calling or Collected Company, you're then just flooding the board really quickly. And then if you don't have any other way to kill, Warmaster has this baked-in overrun that you can just sink seven mana into, give all of your creatures plus two, plus two, and death touch. And I've never activated that and not won the same turn if I'm playing the game where you have to activate it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like your Azuri right from modern and legacy elves so this is the this is the card that lets you go wide but also has a, a mana ability that takes not a mana ability an activated ability that takes advantage of that go wide board state yeah totally i, I think azuri also gives them trample plus it has a regeneration ability but this being two right. mana that also generates board states kind of feels better than azuri because you can play them in multiples they're better in multiples on the board especially Wow, so you're really just playing a ton of ramp here, in case people haven't seen it. It's, elf, it's eight of the elves, eight, eight mystic, or four mystics, four Lanoir, then Jasper Sentinel as well, which is the one that's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a Birch drum, Springleaf drum. Springleaf drum, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like Springleaf drum, 
but so it's this tap tap and untap to you control add one mana of any color to one two with reach then you've got your regular visionary and you've got your leaf crown visionary war master lanawar visionary which is the one that costs a little extra draws a card and taps for mana and then four shaman of the pack yeah four quarter calling four collected company and that is the deck that's the deck. It's a beautiful list yeah it's so simple xbox greg beautiful simple crushed it how have you been doing with it? So you've been playing it. You took it. You took it out a couple of times. Have you played it on Moto? Have I played it on Moto? Yes, I have played it on Moto, and it was okay. But when I played on Moto, it's, I was still learning, and it was before I took it out in paper. And when I played on Moto, I also faced Rakdos at least once, and that is the nightmare matchup. So just to get that yeah, out of the sure. way, like Rakdos, I think is just about unbeatable unless they have a really bad start don't find any removal and you're able to like war master into dwinnin's elites and just like create enough bodies that they can't one for one you but everything else in the format including azoria's control i think is either within reach if not favored for elves azoria's control was the biggest surprise for me to essentially figure out how to play against it and supreme verdict is the scary card there of course but i find that if you peg your opponent on Azorius early enough and you're developing with the understanding or expectation that they're going to try to Supreme Verdict you on four, you can probably make enough tokens with Warmaster and even throw away a Shaman just to do enough pre-Supreme Verdict damage that if they don't draw a second Supreme Verdict, you just rebuild really quickly by not overcommitting and then closing out the game a turn or two later so the first supreme verdict it sucks but it's not game breaking it's really the second one that i think is probably unbeatable every every tribal player has that on their uh on their tombstone yeah yeah this it's not the first it's the second <laughs> verdict That's right but yeah the rest of the format i felt was really not bad especially and perhaps most importantly the mono green matchup is really chill i find that mono green is just kind of soft to cheap chub blockers like one ones are aren't necessarily like easy to get through because their only trampler is uh old growth troll so if they don't have an old growth troll or even if they have one like that's a five turn clock that maybe they're getting it out on turn two or or later everything else that they're doing like you can probably slow them down long enough that you either combo kill them or overrun them it's also important that Mono Green doesn't play cheap removal. So you can actually develop however you need to um, by basically committing to the fastest start that you can without having to play around potential interaction. So that, you know, if their defenses are down for a turn, you can sometimes punish them right away with just like Shaman, Cord for Shaman or Leaf Crown, Leaf Crown, and just like swing with a bunch of three or three threes or four fours. The moment that made me realize how fast elves can be was actually a match I had against Greasefang, where I was on the draw, and my opponent got Perhelion out on turn three, and then I still won the match on the crackback. Which, granted, I just had like the absolute sickest draw possible, and my opponent played enough shocklands that they took themselves down. But like if you can find those lines, elves are just doing the thing that previous good elves decks, including modern and pre-MH1 modern and, and to some extent legacy decks do, which is like you have these tools and you're just like solving a puzzle and just trying to figure out like when do I get in there with either beaters or 
ideally like a massive three mana burn spell and just like closing out the game when our opponents are are not prepared for it. That's awesome. So yeah, that's elves. Um, if you like playing these kinds of decks and maybe you're upset that elves doesn't really have legs in modern these days and you cannot afford Gaius Cradle to play it in Legacy, I think this is... This version, at least, is probably better than people may realize, and I'm not going to make claims about its tiered status, but I think you'll find that it actually can can really compete in the format, like today's Pioneer. Awesome. Well, I know that being able to play Elves is a really happy thing for you, so I'm glad that you found a home for a lot of these cards that you like in a format that you're maybe starting to like. Yeah. I've had Shaman of the Pack since Magic Origins, so like that that's what it kind of comes down to. I just I love playing gold three drops. Who doesn't? However, you said you had another deck to talk about, and yes. I think I nailed it. Did I nail it as far as my guess of what the other deck you like no, in Pioneer is? No, I did not, not. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Though, I, when, when you hear it, it probably won't catch you by surprise, to be honest. And it does play another beloved gold three drop of ours. Okay. Well, now, I'm, now I have a lot of anticipation. It's Azoria Spirits, Dave. What? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Tribal thoughts on Pioneer from Stan right now. Okay. You got to ship me a list for this to look at. I picked up Blue White Spirits for actually 2.5 reasons. One is I thought I would like it just based on play style. I had dabbled with Spirits before in the past. I want to say like pre-pandemic or early pandemic when we were doing like those very first dive down tournaments Mm -hmm. when, when it was still a Slack channel. And I just hadn't picked it up since then. And I, I'd seen the blue-white version do all right lately. Reed talked about both mono blue and blue-white on his recent post-Pro Tour Pioneer tier list. And I was like, let's let's take a look at that. But also, I've been seeing some versions of this deck start to pick up a couple Screlf. The new Screlf. Whoa. As a, you know, bad giver of runes, essentially. Or just like a type of giver of runes. It's neither good nor bad. And I wanted to try out this new card just for science and see what this type of effect would have on on a pioneer deck and um i gotta say the deck did not disappoint dave and i've got some really fun screenshots to prove it wow that's awesome i will say for people who haven't seen the blue white one so this is really close to mono blue spirits that was in Pioneer kind of all, all on and off the last year. The main difference is we're not playing the other one mana spell that came out that lets you draw a card, the other Curiosity, but we are still playing Curious Obsession. So that's really the key to this this deck in my mind that makes it like the mono blue flyer stack. It's got the cheap counters, it's got Curious Obsession, but it is splashing white essentially for a single main deck card and a bunch of sideboard cards. And by a bunch, I mean a lot of sideboard cards. So it's got four spell Queller main. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, which, you know, Stan, we know you cannot resist that. Obviously, since uh, New Phyrexia has come out, or whatever this set is called, Phyrexia All Will Be One, it's got four Seachrome Coasts to finish that splash, along with Articar Wastes, and then even Hallowed Fountain and Hengegate Pathway. So you are never hurting for white mana in this deck. It's It's got a lot of support for it, even though there's not that many white cards in the deck. But other than that, it's your Pioneer, it's your Pioneer uh, Blue Spirits suite, essentially. Yeah, and look, at the end of the day, it takes no amount of convincing to get me to play a Spellqueller deck. Just next to Shaman of the Pack, probably my next favorite three-mana gold card. I love playing it in modern. Haven't had the chance to do that in a long time. Seeing that this deck had picked it up and and was doing fairly well with it. Like again, like 
Um, it's done really well across challenges. Um, I don't think it's won any recently, but it's no, no, it did. It, it won the February 18th Pioneer Challenge in the hands of Traft. It's come in second place a lot. I want to see how it felt in my hands. And yeah, like I said, it felt really good. I think one of the obvious things to everyone else that took me a while to realize about this deck and maybe why I've actually learned to appreciate it so much is that the play style has more in common with the play style of modern Merktide than other tribal decks or other creature control decks even. Oh, there's a take. All right, so let me let me know why you think that. Let's hear it. Because a lot of games in this one are defined by a turn one play that you protect with super cheap counters that then snowballs into potentially a massive source of card advantage. So instead of something like Ragavan or Dragon's Rage Channeler, you're playing Spectral Sailor or Mausoleum Wanderer or Lantern Bearer. And then instead of Expressive Iteration, you're playing Curious Obsession. And a protected Curious Obsession, A, it turns your Geist Light Snare into a one-mana mana leak, which is... Right, which is incredible. Cocoa Bananas. But it's yeah. sometimes drawing you like three or four cards in a single game if you can like curve out with the two mana one to two mana counters and rattle chains or if you have extra mausoleum wanderers to like do a spell pierce or a four spike even really easy to just like play a good one drop that then just does half half the damage you need to do to kind of put a bunch of pressure on your opponent early and then after you've traded resources for a little bit determined that they can't interact with you or they've run out of interaction then you play something like supreme phantom or shacklegeist and create a slightly wider board that just runs them over in a turn or two because it's all in there yeah 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 and the big key on, the, on that pivot a lot of times i found when i've played mono blue spirits anyway is getting rattle chains getting value out of rattle chains and then also you know off of its hexproof trigger and then also getting value out of bringing things in with flash that you usually wouldn't be able to bring in with flash like a supreme phantom like your shacklegeist um, wanderer shacklegeist stuff like that or or suddenly you dump a bunch of creatures that you can tap down things people couldn't you know didn't see coming with shacklegeist that kind of thing yeah yeah i was really impressed with shacklegeist like the instant speed shacklegeist in particular just such a blowout for for a ton of decks yeah 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 i mean you know i love this shell and so i'm glad to hear that you're excited to play it too i have never tried it at least haven't tried it in pioneer with spell queller at all lately so maybe it's something worth worth taking a look at yeah and again not to beat the same old drum but like it has a great mono green devotion matchup i just I don't, yes you kind of just don't lose against that deck even though you're playing mana leaks they're tapping out so frequently and you can pick and choose what you actually have to interact with that you can more or less decide that they're never resolving Karn or Kiora. Like, they can have an Old Growth Troll, fine, but as, as long as they don't get the the Cavalier of Thorns, because that one actually has reach, they just can't do anything about, about your plan. Yeah, and even when they do, sometimes you just have enough, a wide enough board that you can fly around Cavalier. I mean, fortunately, Cavalier doesn't have, like, lifelink as well or something, which would really be pro a problem for this deck. Yeah, so that's Spirits. Great deck, highly recommended. Regarding Skrelf, notably not a spirit and pretty much all the lists i saw that had it were running two in place of another one drop called lantern bear 
Yeah, I haven't seen Lantern Bearer in these decks before, by the way. It's interesting to see it in this one, yeah. for sure. It's it's not bad, and ultimately I think it's better in this deck than Skrelv is, for a couple of reasons. And, and this is, I, I played a little over a league. I sent you a screenshot of that league where I had two sandwich wins and then three losses in the middle, where right. I beat like a couple decks. I, I don't even remember what they were, but then I played three uh, Grease Fang matches in a row, and they just like, they outplayed me every time. How's you? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was not fun. And, and Skrelv, not particularly good there either. But I think the issue with Skrelv is that it's neither a spirit nor a flyer. So relevant for your interaction and your lords and the giver of runes effect never felt substantively better than just like having counters or rattle chain right and likewise because it's a two of that's only good on turn one your odds of happening it in your opener are pretty low but you don't want to play the four of because it just doesn't provide a lot of synergy for the rest of your deck and then drawing it later in the game feels really bad so if you're playing it as an early lightning rod I just think that, you know, if you're replacing Lantern Bearer with it, I'd rather play the Lightning Rod that you can then disturb out for three mana for a little extra reach to close out a game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. The The Spirit Synergy is tough to not to miss out on. And, you know, you already have plenty of interaction and ways to protect your creatures. So, like, keeping Curious Obsession online probably isn't important enough to get Skrelv into your deck. You'd rather just have counter spells because those are better in other matchups and stuff like that, too. This deck does have kind of a rough matchup against, um, or at least the blue one had a rough matchup against Rakdos as well. So it's interesting that you, you have kind of two different decks that you're liking that are rugged against Rakdos, but, you know, you're not going to play it every time. Yeah, so. yeah, I mean, I think the Rakdos matchup here is winnable, though they probably are the favorite, but if you're on the play and they don't have, like, a turn one fatal push, you can just sort of snowball. Um, if they're, like, relying on um, Dreadbore as their removal spell or, or Go for the Throat, yeah. I think, is, is coming up now a little bit more often. The counters magic as well as the rattle chains are both good enough at blanking those that you can like sometimes eke out a win, though it it, it is hard. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, two good tribal decks from Stan this week. Any par- final thoughts? Yeah, I, I got to say, what was the big revelation that I had about Pioneer? Let, let's put a bow on this whole Pioneer section of mine. The thing that clicked for me was ruminating on uh, a notion I've heard come up a lot, including on episodes of The Dive Down when Sky is on to talk about Pioneer, which is this notion that it's a board-based format where combat matters. I I think people Mm -hmm. generally feel that that's the case with Pioneer. And I think that's kind of like an easy sentence to misinterpret because this isn't a curve-out format where you go like turn one land or else turn two Rapple Master, right? Like you can't just play a beatdown strategy. And I think the the piece that truly clicked for me was that your deck and your creatures have to do a lot of other stuff beyond the board. So they either have to have some kind of like combo plan in the case of mono green or grease fang or elves or or, uh, creativity for that matter. Or they have to have like really strong disruptive synergies, things like humans, things like spirits are playing to the board, but they're also just like slowing down the opponent's plan with some kind of removal or other interaction or like ideally some amount of all of the above and i'm not going to get into lotus field as like the exception to the rule but i think once i realized that your cards are or your creatures are more than just beaters they 
are also like fighting on another axis. And that's basically what it takes to engage in this format. And you more or less just need to find the deck that makes you want to engage under those terms with creatures mm -hmm. that are doing things that you find interesting. Like now I, I just find the pioneer experience really rewarding and, and not just because like I'm winning a bit, but also I'm learning a lot from losing like pioneer elves, pioneer spirits are decks that reward good decision-making, good sequencing, understanding when to intera interact, when to combo off, when to commit to the board, what to hold up counter magic for, what to hold up or find with court of calling. And sometimes when I look back at my losses, like I can sort of see the decisions that I've made incorrectly and, being able to to reflect on it and, and know how I need to pack the biggest punch was something that um, made me feel just like less hopeless in pioneer mm -hmm. matches that I lost previously where I would just like try something out and then mono green would run me over and it was just like my cards didn't do squat and it's just like what is the point of all this but having a little extra agency um, helps alleviate that hopeless feeling and yeah I, I think I I, th I think I see myself playing a bit more pioneer too. And it's it's nice to like have those decks that I like playing, and the duality between elves and pioneer is especially fun, just because they like itch different sides of my brain. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, for my part, and again, we hid the decks that we were playing for each other. So, Stan, here's what I'd like to ask you. Yeah, are are you ready to get weird? <laughs> all right, let's try to guess. You're, okay. You played modern. I played all modern this week. All right, yes, cool. I played all modern. Okay, and you also played more than one deck. I played more than one deck. Yeah. Yes, I did. Do, do they share creatures? These these decks? They do not share creatures or colors. Oh, in fact. Okay. Okay. So then, I guess not, neither of them are an Omnath deck because Omnath decks are all colors. Correct. That's a good. That's a good. Good process of elimination there. I did not play any Omnath. Yeah. So I'm guessing you played Scam and Hammer. <laughs> wow. You know what? You got the colors right. Okay. They're not the right decks. All right, here we go. Here's deck number one. I'm going to show you a screen grab of it. I'm sharing a screen with Stan right now. So the first <laughs> deck that I took a look at, I looked at two deck lists that caught my eye. Listen to Stan laughing. He's a happy guy. Listen to him. <laughs> Looking at this deck list right now. I played two different decks this week. Uh, both of them caught my eye on Twitter or various places. First one we're going to talk about really quick was a list from Aspiring Spike. I've never seen this. I have no idea what this is. Some of the cards You're are looking at the deck list right now. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm looking at this deck, and this is. If you told me you had brewed this up this morning, I would have believed you. Well, I didn't brew this up, but our good friend Everett did brew this up and got a 5 0 with this about a week and a half ago, if you can believe it. So, everybody, here's what it is it is Mardu Calibrated Blast, is the first deck that I decided to play this week. Um, here's what's in it. If I told you that there was a deck that had Fury, Leyline Binding, Lightning Bolt, Thoughtseize, Scion of Draco, Fable of the Mirror Breaker, Season Pyromancer, Shadow Prophecy, Shadow of, uh, of Mortality, and Calibrated Blast in it, what would you say? I would say, what is Shadow of Mortality? And You would say, <laughs> nice trade binder, friend. And I would also uh -oh. add, why are you playing Scion of Draco in a deck that's not Domain Zoo? So here's the thing. This is a weird take on Calibrated Blast. So everybody knows Calibrated Blast, right? Calibrated Blast is a deck that generally doesn't have all that many cards in it that aren't Calibrated Blast targets. And this deck 
is full of so the normal calibrated blast targets are like Scion of Draco's in that deck, Shadow of Mortality is in that deck. Shadow of Mortality is that that giant fifteen mana cost card from Streets of New Capenna that if you um, are lower that you know it's it has a reduced casting cost based on life total. So it's sort of like the corrected Death Shadow card. There's other targets like that, and then you play uh, throws of chaos in it to be able to get your calibrated blast and just kill somebody and you play a bunch of lands. That's like the normal plan for calibrated blast. Sorry, calibrated blast stands if I missed anything there, but like that's that's how that deck works. This is a version that ever mentioned that he wanted to try out using the idea of Witch's Cottage, mm-hmm. which is a card from Eldraine that is the swamp version of that cycle of lands that lets you take a creature card from your graveyard and put it on top of your library. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the idea behind this deck, are you following me now, Stan? Yes, yes. I'm guessing you're putting cards into your yard with Spyro and Fable, then Witches cottaging like Shadow or Draco to the top to ca- to like basically build like a fling, build your own fling with Calibrated Blast. Exactly. And that's exactly the idea behind this deck. Now, the thing that this deck gets to do that other ones don't get to do as a result of that is he gets to play cards that are actually castable cards for the most part and have some interactions. So you can play Lightning Bolt to get a little bit of extra damage. You can play Leyline Binding because um, you are already putting together a sort of fetch land dependent mana base based off of I mean, it's essentially like the creativity mana base, but for swamps, right? So you're getting all these different cards that are, you know, different triomes with the cross of the swamp, blood crypts, godless shrine, witch's cottage. It's all about getting up to enough swamps to make witch's cottage work, right? So as a result of that, you can play cards like Shadow Prophecy, Sign of Draco, and Leyline Binding, which are all domain cards. Mm-hmm. And they give you a chance to have some interaction through like Fury, but also potentially cast some of your cards. Like I definitely cast and won with Sign of Draco in, in the practice room and things like that. So you can sort of get together with this idea of I'm going to blast somebody and then I'm going to chip in for a bunch of extra damage. But while I'm waiting to blast somebody, I can thought seize them. I can kill their creatures. I can play season pyromancer or fable to try to get value and kind of go from there. I think this is the best utilization I've seen of shadow prophecy, which is a good and powerful card that needed an, a good application. And the fact that it yes. both, puts cards in your hand and lets you selectively put cards in your graveyard at instant speed, no less. Yeah. Seems really nice for this type of combo in particular. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is, that's sort of cutting to the punchline a little bit stand for sure, because in my mind, when I played this deck, that was one of the main takeaways I've had is that I always thought the shadow prophecy was a good and powerful card. You know, it's, this card is factor fiction Mm -hmm. when you have, domain except for it costs one less there's no piles you get to decide what goes where even though you pay two life it's still at instant speed and everything i i still think it's a little bit of like this deck i don't think is great like spoilers i had fun playing it i i played these two decks i decided to take one of them to a league it, it was not this one you know after playing it in tournament practice for a while but i did like medium okay with this deck in tournament practice i think i was probably like two three or something in the practice matches that i had and the plan works but i don't think that it's powerful enough even though it's the best like application of shadow prophecy it didn't really feel like 
like this deck was really coming together, coming together the way that I wanted to. Hmm. And some of that was because of how hard it was to make the transition from the fair plan to the blast plan, right? Because you kind of have these two different card pools in your deck where you're kind of like, Sometimes you want to draw Spyro, but you really want to draw one, but then you shadow, shadow Prophecy into another Spyro and a Fable, and you're like, well, I don't want any of these cards anymore. I don't need this. Or, you know, you top deck a Thoughtseize late when you really don't need that kind of thing, which is a normal thing to have happen with Thoughtseize. But, you know, and then other times you're kind of like, wow, um, I really need a Shadow of Mortality, but again, I only want to draw one. So there are those times where you get two Shadow of Mortality and you're like, this is terrible. Why do I have Shadow of Mortality in my deck? Um, you know, it's really a weird duality of these things of like, I want to draw this card, but I only want one of them, but I have to have four of them in it. So a lot of times you're sitting here, you're sitting here with this deck, I felt like feeling like you're waiting around. Um, and one thing I thought about this deck that I would try to see if it just helped or was interesting was, okay, well, Calibrated Blast costs three mana, it's an instant, and it has flashback. So if in the early game I'm running low on removal or I need to do something with my mana, like how bad is it to just Calibrated Blast in the dark and just see what happens for as a piece of creature removal or even to do a little chip damage to an opponent? And let me tell you, after doing that a little bit, I sat down and thought about it for a minute and realized, well, here are the odds. If you ever think about playing this deck or about playing Calibrated Blast or just doing something like this without looking at the odds, there's 37 non-land spells in this deck minus one card for the Blast that you're casting. So there's 36 cards in the deck, okay? There's eight one-mana value spells main deck between Lightning Bolt and Thoughtseize. That's 22% of the time you're going to hit a one-mana spell with this. There's eight 12 slash 15 drops in this deck that's also 22 percent to chance so you're only really like one in five to hit one of your real payoffs with calibrated blast in the dark it's not great odds you're just as likely to hit a one mana card after that there's seven five drops in here between your furies and your um where's the other five oh five six drops really leyline bindings the other one and then you have 13 three drops so you're 37 percent to hit a to hit a three drop in the dark you're most likely to hit a three drop when you do this you'll do that more than a third of the time why is, so, why is that so bad though so that's what i was going to say as far as killing creatures in modern it's not too bad to hit a three plus drop as long like almost anything that you as long as you keep in mind that you really should be trying to target things that have three toughness or less with this card you can probably get away with using it as a piece of removal and that happens 80 percent of the time but 20% of the time you're going to brick and you're going to get a one mana card and you're going to feel bad about it. And that's going to be it. And it happened to me multiple times, you know? So it's this weird thing where I think the RNG is okay. I'd mostly want to hold on to my blast as much as I could, but you know, out of desperation, you can do this if you want. The other thing that I noticed about this deck for what it's worth, as I was messing around with it in the tournament practice is uh, it's bad against both graveyard hate and blood moon, yeah. which is kind of a, a hard, <laughs> hard place to be yeah. because you don't have very many uh you don't have very many basic lands you really need you know double black to cast shadow of mortality out of des desperation for example double red is good in the sense that you can get blood moon but it turns off your shadow prophecy your leyline binding your cyan and draco of draco you don't always get a chance to, to fetch up your one swamp there's just lots of things that can happen here to make it difficult against blood moon and then even worse graveyard hate just pretty much completely destroys you 
Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You're only one, running one basic swamp main, and then you also have an extra basic planes on the side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, this is this is Everett's list. I, so so I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. What, 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 um, when do you bring in the planes? I, I honestly, I don't get it. Against Blood Moon, I think. But, yeah. But what are you, Mostly against Blood Moon. What are you using it to cast? I, I think you want it for Path of Peril out of the sideboard and occasionally to hard cast a Leyline Binding, I guess. But Path of Peril is, is black black. Uh, the cleave cost is for white black. Ah, okay. For what it's worth. Okay. So it it can yeah it can make you more likely to be able to cast it as a destroy all creatures as a wrath. Interesting. Instead. That's so funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one quick question about like the witch's cottage line because because mm-hmm. cottage doesn't like the earliest you can get cottage to do anything is turn four. If you right. if you have blast in hand and you can get cottage down on four, let's say like. You played the the turn three fable, turn four cottage uh, into blast. Is do you just win right there? Like, is this a turn four deck? If you can pull that off, you win maybe two thirds of the time. I would think sometimes you have to get those extra five points of damage still, and so that becomes okay. Am I going to blast you again and hope to hit a three drop? Am I going to lightning bolt you? Am I going to attack you once? or twice with Season Pyromancer, like, you got to close those extra five damage, and people don't always do it to themselves. So obviously this deck has turned out to, when I played it, was a bit better against decks that, you know, do some damage to themselves with like, with those. And conversely, was really bad against decks that have any kind of life gain <laughs> in them. So if you have life gain, and all of a sudden someone has 28 life effectively playing against you, it takes so much more effort to knock them down from there that it was really, really hard. Hmm. Well, I applaud you for trying this, Dave. It's funny and cool. Yeah. Bottom line, I think it's a really cool built deck. It was an interesting idea. I love Everett's idea to say, like, let me go through the Eldraine lands <laughs> yeah. and like try to try to build a mana base around those and use that mechanic. Because as we know, being able to fetch these up is a thing that has led to a bunch of different decks happening. So, you know, keep an eye on that, see where else he, he goes with that idea. I think playing blast in this way is really cool fury is always an awesome card as we said this is the perfect deck for shadow prophecy and i that's a card i'm going to be keeping my eye on going forward just to find a home for it at some point um and having the ability to do mid-range in this combo is kind of interesting and fun but at best for me like on our scale this is a believe i would say it's like a believe minus probably honestly for sure the only reason it's even there is because ever got a 5-0 with it but okay and then I have another deck to show you, Stan. I'm going to bring up another <laughs> another deck list for you to see. And that is by a player named Hank the Obese on Mono White Humans. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. In Modern. Now, this, is, this deck has been standing out to me lately. I mentioned it on our recap of Modern Challenges a few weeks ago. You know... This one pilot, Hank the Obese, has gotten a first, a third, a seventh, and an eleventh. And I believe that the list that I'm looking at actually is another entry from this weekend that was a tenth place in a modern challenge at a five and two. This deck is wild. Okay. It's sort of like someone took the Pioneer Humans package and powered it up for modern. All right, so here, here's what's in this deck. This deck is Monoid Humans. It's no Aether Vial, if you can believe it, when we're going this way. It's four Champion of the Parish, four Dauntless Bodyguard, four Esper Sentinel, 
for Luminarch Aspirant, for Talia's Lieutenant, for Adeline Resplendent Cathar, for Solitude, three Thalia Guardian of Thraben, and then four Chancellor of the Annex, four Shining Shoal, four Maria's Call, and then lands that go with that, including four Mutal Vaults, four Caverns, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're going to have to tell me what Chancellor and Shoal do. So these are, of course, the strangest cards in the deck. Okay, so Chancellor of the Annex, this is part of that cycle from New Phyrexia, Mm -hmm. you know, that what it does is you can reveal this card from your opening hand. It costs seven for a 5-6 flyer, and it says if you reveal this card, when each opponent casts their first spell of the game, counter that spell unless that player pays one. And then it has a static ability on it. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, counter it unless that player pays one. So this card is really there about taxing your opponent's first spell, trying to use that to be able to build up a an advantage on your board. Okay? Yep. Shining Shoal, what it does is it says, you may exile a white card with converted mana cost X from your hand rather than pay this man- spell's mana cost. And its mana cost is X generic white white. And it says the next X damage that a cho- source of your choice would deal to you and or creatures you control this turn is dealt to any target instead. So this card is super weird. And with the timing and the prevention effects and all that kind of stuff, I'm pretty sure that what this is in here for is this is a card that you can pitch one of your giant white cards to, like either Chancellor of the Annex or Amaria's Call, to direct somebody's fury somewhere else. (laughs) Whether you want to direct it to one of their creatures, you want to direct it to fury, you want to direct it back to them, those are all things that you can do with Shining Shoal. And I I have to say, because we're running out of time here, I played this deck a good amount. I think I played 10 rounds with this deck. And I did pretty well in tournament practice this is one of those decks where like i did well in tournament practice then i went and played a league and jot just got absolutely housed oh yeah in a in a league i lost to scam murktide creativity grizzle brand and john saga i went oh five <laughs> with this with this in a league um after going like four one with it against not completely different decks in tournament practice right um so i don't know if it's just bad timing or whatever but I really wanted to like this deck. I love the idea of mono white being um, humans, number one being a thing, but also mono white being something that someone can pull off in modern. And of course this person, Hank the obese is pulling it off in modern with all these challenge finishes. They play mono white in pretty much every format. They're kind of like a mono white specialist, whether they're playing in vintage, they play it in modern, they play it in legacy, played in pioneer, um, getting a lot of challenge results with all of it. This was just hard for me because all of these cards just felt like they just die in modern constantly. Or you have these hands where you draw two Chancellor of the Annex and an Amiria's Call off the top as you're going through your <laughs> through your game, and it's like, oh boy, you know, I just have all these seven drops, and I'm never going to cast any of these. So it's tough. This is a deck I was excited to play, and then just completely <sighs> did not take off for me at all. Yeah, this is a tricky one to evaluate because, like, it has the typical humans element of, like, Champion of the Parish, Dauntless Bodyguard, Esper Sentinel, Thalia's Lieutenant, right? Mm-hmm. Even Thalia itself. And then it has, like, Solitude. Like, good cards. Adeline, I guess, is fine. Like, if, if you're curving out, it makes a lot of bodies eventually. I just don't understand, like, yeah. do you need Chancellor and Shining? Like, 
or even a Marius well, call? Well, that's, that's the thing. That That's the thing from here. So, like, I love the design of this, like, the idea of saying, okay, we're going to play a Marius call because we want to be able to pitch our lands. So we don't have to play more lands. We can put more cards in our deck, right? Okay. That's the idea. Right, right. And that, so you can pitch it to Solitude. You can pitch it to Shining Shoal, and that's great. It makes those cards turn on. Chancellor of the Anna- Annex, I, I don't really felt like I ever gained any tempo off of having it in my opening hand. And I would sideboard it out a lot and stuff like that, and it just felt like it wasn't really making an impact. And I had so many games, again, this might just be bad RNG, where it was like turn five, peel Chancellor off the top, turn eight, Peel Chancellor off the top. Right. You're just like, oh, great. <laughs> what do I do with these? Right. Like, and how good is the Chancellor effect in your opener, even? It, it's basically just I mean, like, it's really, it's just a roadblock. Like, it just tells your opponent, okay, like, I can't play a, a Ragavan or a Thoughtseize on one. I have to play it on two. And, and, yeah. and you're just trying yeah, to exactly. like, develop before you- then. Yeah, and it lets you have a chance to play like Esper Sentinel into Luminarch Aspirant or something with your first two turns when they haven't had a chance to cast anything, essentially. So there might be that kind of thing here where, oh, well, yeah, you're supposed to take Chancellor out whenever you're on the play or something like that. You're only supposed to have it when you're on the draw or whatever, you know, this pilot was thinking when they put the deck together. You know, obviously, I was just trying this out, so I didn't get a chance to really look at it. But that card really stood out to me a bunch of times as just being like, this doesn't feel like it's really happening right. for this to me. It, it's also interesting to me that Chancellor's Mana Cost is the same as Hardcasting Emerius Call. So maybe they're just like your finishers. Right. Well, but this deck only has... So one version of it that I tried only had 16 lands in it, plus four Emeria Call. Mm-hmm. And then the other one had... This one that I'm looking at right now, it just had some updates for yesterday's challenge, has 17 lands in it, plus four Emeria Call. So like you're never getting the seven mana. Like, almost never. I did one time playing this deck. Well, through. Just- you can play Amiri's Call as a land. Well, yeah, of course, but that's what I mean. Like, it's you're never casting the seven drops, so they're not really going to be your finishers. Uh huh. Uh huh. I mean, Amiri's Call. I was just I was reminded a little bit from from this building that like the idea of using the pitch lands with the with the pitch elementals is an interesting thing to be able to do right now. You can't do that for every card. Right. Amiri's Call is maybe the best one of these because it goes with Solitude, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I just mostly left this feeling like I, I played this feeling like, oh, this should not be too difficult for me to try to get some momentum with. And then I just felt like every time I played Dauntless Bodyguard, it didn't matter. Every time I played Luminarch Aspirant, it didn't matter. Adeline was a little bit better, but really, like, then you get into the upper end things. Like, getting tricky with Shining Shoal was not too advantageous yeah. often. Yeah. I don't know. This is one of those ones where I looked at it and I was like, this is going to be sweet. And then I would kind of like, and even after I played it in the practice rooms, I felt like this is actually pretty good. I can't wait to try it in the league. And then it was just like, here's five great decks in the format, or I should say four great decks in the f- format and Neo brand, uh, Neo brand piloted by Azax, by the way. So, um, I got roundly destroyed in that matchup. Yeah. I wonder if there's like something to shining show that we're not picking up on because Lawson's Andy has also been playing a shoal deck, a different shoal deck. Yeah. Yes. Very, very, like, it's not a human's deck. It's like a whole other plan. But, like, if these yeah. two very different decks are playing shoal, like, it's, it's, I just feel like there's a, there's a trick to it that we're not picking up on. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I did get to do was, like, do six damage to someone off of a Merktide with it. 
to like almost close out a game. So you can you can do that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. And like Lawson again just posted a screenshot where he shoaled an infect opponent. Right. And I guess like maybe that's that's part of the appeal is just like you try to trick your opponent into like overcommitting and then you shoal them and then you just like win out of nowhere. Yeah. But anyway, I'm going to keep an eye on this and see if it keeps coming because like I said, it would be nice if this card if this deck did something in modern i think i think it would be good if modern had a sort of tribal aggro deck like this but um I, you know i couldn't pick it up and make it work just on my own over a weekend i guess oh boy shoal 14 dollar card yeah as of last month prior to that one dollar card <laughs> right it's happening Ooh. it's already happening yeah so gotta buy it just in case All right. Yeah. All right. So this one I kind of just have as a believe as well, um, you know, as far as our scale goes. So not nothing that really stuck with me yet. Kind of just made me feel like I wanted to go back to playing the stock decks of the formats. But, you know, you got to mix it up sometimes. Yeah. What, what, what are you going to play next, Dave? If, you, if you're going back to stock, is it Scam and Hammer? Are you scammering? Yeah. Scammer time. It's Scammer time. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. All right. Well, this was fun. I liked our little hour segment. Efficient. Yeah. To the point. It's only half the show. I hope I hope Shane and Devin's talked for 90 minutes and now we're just giving people like the longest episode ever that isn't us doing 100 cards or 200 decks or what, what have you. Yeah. And just breaking Tanner's heart. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we'll go back to the rest of the show. Bye. So Dave, as I as I mentioned earlier, I did that thing again where I, I went on, you know, a little bit of a trip, a little bit of a business trip, vacation thing, and I'm not packing, you know, a large puck of shaving soap. I'm not packing my brush. I'm not packing the, you know, the safety razor. I'm I'm scraping by with a travel bottle of uh, like Gillette and a disposable razor and I'm I'm hating life like the two times I I force myself to shave sounds positively barbaric Shane how could you do this to yourself <laughs> oh I'm a monster so I come home and I'm I'm a little bit ragged from not shaving as much as I usually do and the first thing I do of course is shower at home and this is no lie I I bust out the barrister and man uh, and my choice my first choice this time I felt in the mood for Le Grand Chipre which is a, a part of the classic collection over a barrister and man. And what's cool about this one is very, this is everything. Every time I read one of these things, it's always, I'm always like, well, you are a wild, wild individual. Lay it on me. So it's just like, so it's like, so he's like, here's the history of Sheepras, y'all. This, this started in 1917. Sheep by or Sheepras? It's Sheepras. What's a Sheepras? Sheepras. Chipra, and from f- perfume tycoon Francois Coty, he created the family in 1917. So it's uh, indigenous to the island nation of Cyprus. And so you know, bergamot as 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 of course, of course. What is if what is a fragrance without bergamot, my friends? I think at this point, bergamot's been on more episodes than any of the rest of us <laughs> have been on. It takes less Regular- weeks off. Bergamot never sleeps. Shane. Regular guest host bergamot. Yeah. <laughs> Lime, oak moss, touch of patchouli, elegant citrusy heart, peach, rose, frankincense, cedar, cinnamon, other supporting smells. Elegant, slightly fruity, freshly floral. That I think you get the idea that this is like, well, that's everything, right? And 
that's kind of the answer. That's one of the things I like about the Grand Cheaper is it's like a little bit of everything. It's like a little bit citrusy. It's a little bit smooth. It's floral. It's fruity. Um, and it is, it's a total classic. I have the aftershave splash. I have the shaving soap and I would highly recommend it uh, as part of the, you know, just the, the thing that's always in stock. They always have the Grand Cheaper and there's a good reason for it. It's because, you know, it has what, 112 reviews with five star average. Mm. So people, wow. people really like this one. Yeah. Le Grand Reviews. <laughs> Le Grand Reviews. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to grab some of the Grand Cheaper, if you want to grab some of the recent additions to uh, the Barrister and Mand uh, portfolio, I know that you guys mentioned Maryland last week. That's a you know a popular and awesome scent. I love my sample of Maryland. Go to Barrister and Man, M A double N. Uh, use coupon code the dive down 2023 gets you 15 percent off your first order there let's will and the rest of the crew know that you came through the dive down and we appreciate your ongoing support devin you're back again the most regular co-host we have had in a long 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 time welcome back Glad to be here. Yeah, I was actually talking on my stream. How many times do I have to be a? How many times before I'm a, I'm a special guest before I'm a, considered a regular guest? <laughs> I mean, you're yeah, regular guest host Devin O'Donnell, also known as Doomwake. Uh, I saw you streaming today again. Saw some some interesting pioneer stuff happening. I saw the the Storm Herald combo. Was that the thing the 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 deck you finished up with? Yeah, we're maybe maybe cooked, cooked a little bit too much with that one, but uh yeah, the goal is just to try and, you know, <laughs> tap a 20 power 23 power Storm Herald. Uh it's there's a lot that has to go right, but uh you know, maybe there's something there. Yeah. I mean, is it kind of literally kind of like the the Grease Fang combo where the combo is cast Grease Fang, like just have stuff in your graveyard and cast the card and then you win? Yeah, it's basically Grease Fang. If you took Parhelion, ripped it in half, and had to have two different pieces to like actually complete the Parhelion, <laughs> you know, adventure or whatever, basically you just need two Parhelions in your graveyard, essentially. But what's the the advantage? Is what that you you don't die to artifact removal? Like what else? What's what's the real draw here? Well, you get to play blue and red cards, which means you get to play Ledger Shredder and Fable of the Mirror okay, Breaker. Yes. And those cards are you know pretty pretty good okay. cards. So you get to play with other good cards, is what we're what we're saying yeah. here. Okay, good, got it. What we're going to talk about uh, is a cool new pioneer, newer pioneer deck. Because you know, I, Devin, I think that pioneers felt a little bit static for a while. We haven't, we didn't see anything particularly mind blowing in the pioneer pro tour, besides maybe the cementing of creativity as like a, a tier one ish strategy in the format. And I think that's pretty easy to say, or potentially easy to say. There's not too much new happening in Pioneer, even with all the focus on it recently. But then I say that, and I think that, you know, you probably have some other ideas, but one of the things I think that we would be overlooking is a newer addition to the format. And I think originally it was pushed forward pretty strongly by Todd Anderson, who also is a, you know, pretty prolific Pioneer streamer, primarily, if I can say other P words. Um, so after the release of Phyrexia All Will Be One, he was 
he kind of pretty quickly put together a Golgari sacrifice deck, or if you want to be a little bit more on the nose, Tyvar sacrifice, right? Right, yeah. And so basically, this is, um, you know, I've worked on a lot of Tyvar shells. This is something that I, I necessarily didn't quite get to. But yeah, Todd was the first person that I saw playing this deck, like you said, a couple of weeks after release. And, you know, he, he talked about, I think he, I want to say he 5 voted a league right around, right before the Pro Tour. And he's been super high on this deck. So yeah, it's a, it, it's a good one. Yeah, I think it was like on like February 14th or something like that, like almost a month ago, he said like, you know, the shell is really good. This could be a pretender, you know, contender at the PT, but we, you know, we didn't see that happen. People didn't really push the envelope too much, but I know people like Todd, people like yourself have kept pushing this deck forward and iterating on some of the important card choices, how the decks, you know, what are the core pieces? What are the engine pieces? Things like that. You recently took it to a 15th place finish on the March 5th challenge. I also noticed that the 12th place deck was a somewhat similar Golgari sack deck, also featuring Tyvar, piloted by Hamuda. And, you know, there's there's some significant differences there, of course, like that we'll, you know, talk about. But you know, that fe- this is kind of like the Catacomb Sifter, which is just another car- another card that can ramp you, but also just sort of creates two bodies across one card, things like that. This one had Bolus's Citadel, of course, which is just a different engine piece. But we're going to talk about the one that you've been playing. I think this is a good time to talk about this cool new strategy in Pioneer. Well, kind of, you know, the usual, how this works, why you might want to be playing it, how it matches up against the other decks in the formats. And I think, you know, I'm going to give you my spiel about how I think this deck works after, you know, watching you play it, uh, trying to play it a little bit myself. But what the, the deck seeks to do is play creatures that make multiple bodies, use sacrifice engines to kill these things off, and ping your opponent to death using these you know the death trigger abilities of various cards in the deck. And then, you know, meanwhile, you might be getting in some incidental attacks here and there. And you're creating a whole bunch of small creatures all the time in this deck. You can often block for value. And so that creates a really grindy nature of a lot. You know, a lot of these sacrifice decks just sort of grind your opponent via chip damage from, you know, cards like Zulaport Cutthroat or in like Rakdos, you have things like cat, you know, cat, the cat oven combo. So you can just sort of whittle your opponent down over the course of a game just through a bunch of your stuff and their stuff dying right one one note i anything i missed well no you you got pretty you pretty good there the one thing that i, I did want to mention i did play a little bit with the bulls of citadel version as well so i kind of i have an idea of of kind of both versions i, I actually kind of did like a mix of i only i think I, the version that i had like had two citadels and kind of some less numbers and some of the other like less sifters and, and that stuff but yeah for the most part it is playing what some people would describe as some really bad draft comments like Lazatep Reaver, which <laughs> I will say is you know a pretty good card in this deck. Maybe not the most uh, not the most prolific constructed card of its time, but yeah, just you know put a bunch of stuff yeah. onto the battlefield, utilize scrap uh, sack outlets like Priest, Woe Strider, and uh, things like that to kind of get some get a little bit of advantage that way. Yeah, when I found myself ordering for Lazatep Reaper from the online marketplaces because I just, I so rarely get to the LGS that I didn't want to assume that they were going to have them. I just wanted to have them in play in, you know, in my collection already. I was like, things have gotten weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this looks like a lot of sacrifice decks that I've seen in the past. It's the kind of thing where when I watch other people play it, I mean, when I watched you play it, I'm always impressed by the quick decision-making ability that people like you, people like Todd, you know, I, uh, 
Spike plays a lot of kind of Rakdos sack decks and, and modern and things like that. And he's always, you know, gen- you're always generating lots of value out of these cards and kind of figuring out what's the best line for me to do the most damage. And that's where I get confused and, and where I get kind of a little bit overwhelmed where it's like, well, do I play my sack creation cards? Do I play my engine cards? Do I play you know my Tyvar to try to get future value? And that's really why I wanted to get you on to talk about this deck because one, you're doing well with it, and you know it a heck of a lot better than I do. But I do think that this is a an interesting option in the format, and not just a curiosity, because I think that Tyvar opens up a really interesting outlet for playing these style of decks. We'll talk about what it brings to the deck. And also, I think that it offers just sort of a different line of attack that has different strengths and I think probably weaknesses against the field on the whole than kind of the traditional Rakdos or, or Junsack decks that we've seen in the past. So it, with Tyvar specifically, you know, we never really had a Planeswalker that was truly good with a, like a sacrifice, a Planeswalker that was good in the sacrifice shell. Uh, a lot of people want to talk about, they, a lot of people set off Nixilis, the adversary. I don't know if you remember the, the hype around that card. That was the next Oko. Oh, I do remember that, yes. But uh, yeah, the, this that one really never truly lived up to the hype. So the fact that we get a Planeswalker allows the deck to kind of have this different dimension where you can attack from different angles. You're getting value out of the Planeswalkers, still using the creatures. So it's, you know, it, you're getting value out of a lot more different types of permanents as well. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Tyra, let's just get into it. Let's talk about the, the Planeswalker in the room and get into the deck construction. And of course, this deck is running for Tyvar. Jubilant Brawler. I feel like we've talked a lot about this card in the past weeks. I don't want to repeat its abilities too much, but man, I feel like this deck extracts so much value out of the plus, the minus, and the static. You know, you can activate abilities of creatures you control as though they those creatures had haste. Sweet. The plus one untaps a no one target up to one target creature, and the minus two mills three cards. Then you may return a creature card with mana value two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Starting loyalty is three. So I feel like Tyvar isn't essential to the wins with this deck, but like you you do get advantage out of all these things. Like the static allows you to use your mana dorks immediately but also a card i think we'll get into the weeds more on later which is priest of forgotten gods you can use that immediately the plus lets you untap something to use it again the minus lets you get back something important that you might have had to sacrifice or was removed by your opponent at some point so like you're looking at something like devoted combo which i talked about a couple weeks ago on the pod you know tyvar supports those surprise wins out of nowhere but and also offer some redundancy. I feel like Tyvar here is a bit of a different role and that he creates just so much value out of so many different parts of your deck. Like how do you find Tyvar performing in this deck? Yeah, that's 100% correct. It's you're not really ever trying to like you're not going to win the game on the spot unless your opponent's at two life when you give your priest the forgotten gods haste. But what it does is like you said, it provides this massive amount of value being able to untap your priest to get an extra activation. It mills 3, which not only can rebuy priests that were uh, already killed, but if you don't have a priest in the graveyard, you can just YOLO and try to find a priest off of the top three. Yeah. It also fuels additional uh, cards for Woestrider because the escape on Woestrider, I think it's four, so it allows you to get more deeper into your d- deeper into oh, your yeah. graveyard for Woestrider escapes. Um, sometimes if you have a cutthroat in play and a sack outlet, rebuying a second cutthroat can just be lethal on the spot, so it can also you know provide 
kills like that. It just, every single ability on this card is so massive with so many different cards. It's, it, what it does is it kind of, normally with sacrifice decks, you know how they're kind of, they sometimes have these anemic draws where they have like, you know, like you're playing Rakdosak and you have Mayhem Devil and no Sack Outlet or, you know, vice versa. Tyvar kind of goes with so many different pieces. It's essentially like, it's basically a combo card with everything in the deck. You're, when you have Tyvar, you're always going to have something to do with it, and that's the best part about it. Yeah, that's a really good point because, like, you know, other three mana walkers that we've seen, if they're either they're really sort of synergistic with the deck's plans, like I think about kind of a, a pretty playable three mana walker and like you know Nissa, who like plus to make like an O one. You know, Dryad or something like that, or I was like a leaf token. I don't even remember what that creature was, but like, is Oko synergistic with its plan for three meta planeswalkers? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like where we get into the outliers, right? Where it's like we have got Oko, we've got Teferi three, which is sort of like generic value, but then like they're they're. I mean, Teferi, of course, shores up particular matchups, especially in things like modern, where it's like, yeah, you can't cast cascade spells you know you can't do a lot of things that you know in the control mirror you can't counter people's spells so that's really good value there but tyvar doesn't read like that on the face of the card but it's like then when you put it into a shell like this again similar to the devoted combo strategies where tyvar does a lot there i think you're exactly right when like you know you you see it perform really well with nearly every card in the deck and when you talk about even the the, the slightly cruddy you know draft fodder it's good there like you get back like a card that's making two bodies you get two more sacrifice you know potential sacrifice uh cards for the for your engines and then you're you know doing four or six damage sometimes and that's just that's a lot for just a you know a minus two Right, and even sometimes... Of course, this is a Golgari deck. And even sometimes when you're behind on board, getting back two blockers off of a Lazatep Reaver or even a... You know, just can be so important in those spots. Right on. So Tyrant works with a lot of cards, and I think one of the cards... One of the primary class of cards, I guess, in this deck that I think it works well with is our Mana Dorks. And so, of course, we run the full eight elves. We've got the four Elvish Mystic, four Llanowar Elves, and you kind of know what these do. Accelerate your mana. You want to play your three drop you know, cards early. You can play your you know your four cost spells more quickly. You can double spell more easily. You can leave up mana more easily. All that kind of good stuff that having more mana does for you. But then you know, like we said, the addition of Tyvar to this deck makes your elves even more powerful because you can use them the turn they hit the battlefield. But you can also untap them to generate even more mana if you need. And I think in this deck, they do serve double duty as like sacrifice potter. So like, you know, you have a few elves that are no longer super useful. Then they're dealing, you know, one to two damage to your opponent. And that's a pretty good use of a one mana card. Yeah, even with Priest too. Like there's a lot of times where I just go turn one elf, turn two priest. And as soon as I untap with it, even if I don't have another land in my hand, I'll just sack my elves. Like once once you're untap with the priest, because the priest can get your mana back too. Um, another thing that's really yeah. not necessarily well, like you said, you you know, giving the elves haste, they can tap the turn that they um, that they come into play. It's very important because there's a lot of spots where, like, once you you go, let's say you elf into Tyvar, and when you're activating Priest, you're drawing cards, but sometimes you need additional mana. So, like, the elves being free, you can go, like, play an elf, float a green mana, sack it to Priest, then get two more black mana, then you have three, and you can kind of just, like, chain through your deck a bunch. So, oh, yeah. even though, you know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, come at first glance, it's very important that they, uh, that they can tap for mana that turn. 
Yeah. So let's talk about Priest of Forgotten Gods. I feel like Priest is one of your primary sack engines in this deck. It's it's a card that I remember being a, a thing when... Maybe it was when Historic was just getting going on Arena. And I remember there was like some priest decks that were fairly popular there. And, you know, especially in combination with things like Claim the Firstborn, I believe. And so what this card does is one in a black, one, two. Shane, that sounds bad. But you can tap it to sacrifice two other creatures. Any number of target players each lose two, two life and sacrifice a creature. You add black, black and draw a card. So like in a vacuum, this card feels powerful, but has tough restrictions, right? You have to have two other cards to serve as your sacrifice fodder, and you have to be able to untap with it after you play it, right? Because it's a tap ability. It does not have haste, but if you're able to satisfy these conditions, like the card is doing so much work, right? Like you get the edict, it's especially powerful against decks that aren't making a large number of threats against you. You force your opponent to lose two life. You get the two black mana out of it. You draw a card. That's just a, a lot for a two mana card. Right. And then when you throw a diver into the mix, like you said, it kind of just mitigates, well, that mitigates, but basically removes those entire downsides. Tyvar not only allows you to activate it immediately, but it also, you know, the minus two can rebuy a creature, which potentially could be two if you have a Lazatep Reaver. So yeah, it's it's yeah, almost yeah. like Tyvar just, you know, this card is hard to build with, but Tyvar kind of makes it effortless. And I feel like Tyvar like sets up these big chains, like you were referring to a little bit earlier, where it's like, you know, you use the priest twice in one turn if you're able. And so you can do things like make mana with the first priest activation. You play another creature from hand, like a last step reaver or something like that, or a woe strider. And then you're able to like do that again. You combine that with your ping effects from those creatures dying. And you can have these turns where like your opponent's losing eight or more life through like two priest activations, depending on your board state. And that's a lot. I've activated Priest four times in the same turn with this deck. <laughs> you can you can get pretty crazy that, with it. That, yeah, that would basically close the door. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Priest has been a card because of the fact that it's you know it's underpowered on its body, and it's a tap ability. Like it's been one of those cards where it's like this clearly has play just because of what happens when you activate that ability, right? But I think like the fact that you know giving it haste and giving it the recursion ability from Tyvar is like this really interesting one-two punch where, you know, they're like peas and carrots, right? Where it's like, I've got, if I've got Tyvar and I've got Priest and my opponent is not threatening me you know, really aggressively, like I feel like I'm set up for a couple turns in a row. Yeah, you just, you just use it over and over and over again if they're not interacting with your Priest. And that's the other thing. It's, you know, even if they do interact with your Priest because that Tyvar provides it haste, it, you know, you can even... Like most of the most of the games where you have Tyvar and Priest, you're almost you're gonna want to leave with Tyvar first because then even if they have a removal spell in your hand, you play Tyvar or you have Tyvar in play, you play Priest. Even if they can't kill it, you get to activate it regardless. And then if they do kill the Priest, then you just get it back with Tyvar. So yeah, it just it it's it just works so well together. Yeah, it's like an interesting pinch on your opponent, right? Like which is like I think. Something that when I hear higher level players talk about deck construction or like why decks are particularly good, it's because they make the opponent have to make tough choices that neither are very good. 
right? And like the situation you just presented is one of those where it's like, well, dang, like I have to either deal with this Tyvar because of the you know, ongoing value it's providing, but then I have to deal with a priest at some point too. And either, either way I, I cut it, it's not great for me. And I think that's what I think is interesting about particularly this deck and particularly, you know, the addition of Tyvar, because like you look at this deck before Tyvar's in it, and it's like, sure, this is a functional shell of a deck, but you know, it's slow, it's mopey, it doesn't able, it's not able to get a lot back out of its graveyard besides the Woe Strider with Escape, which requires five mana. And so you, you bring these abilities to the table and suddenly you are making your opponent have to answer a lot more questions. And that's tough. Yeah, and before Tyvar, a lot of these decks that you that we've seen have they're more of like the Bolas of Citadel versions, where they're just on four Bolas of Citadel, four Collected Company, and just all creatures. And what Tyvar allows you to do, it, so Bolas of Citadel is, I, you know, I'm not gonna don't get me wrong, Bolas of Citadel is a powerful card, but it costs six mana. It's really hard to cast. So. Tyvar kind of provides you a similar amount of value that Bolas' Citadel does in a three-mana Planeswalker that's also harder to interact with. So before you had, like, you know, Priest would allow you to kind of jump the curve to get to Citadel. Now you don't even need the mana from yeah. Priest to get to your payoff. You just cast it for three mana. Yeah, right on. I prefer paying three versus six <laughs> and for my engine pieces, for <laughs> sure. All right, let's talk about another kind of sack engine piece in Zulaport Cutthroat. You're running a whole playset of these, of course. I feel like most people don't know what this does. It's our one in a black, one, one. And when Zulaport or any another creature you control dies, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. Classic aristocrat sacrifice style card. You're just slowly kind of whittling your opponent down while buffering your own life total. And you're gaining that value from all your other sack engines in the deck. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know what else to say about this card. Like, how how high are you prioritizing having a Zulaport down versus other cards in the deck? Like, are you, like, like what's your thought on this in terms of, like, how, how essential is this in my opener? How essential is this for me to get on the board? Well, I'm glad you asked, Shane. I actually think this is the worst card in the deck. <laughs> and th- not necessarily, it's... It's weird because the card is powerful and it does something very unique, but the problem with Zulaport Cutthroat, you never, ever want to cast it early. It's basically always the last card you cast because if you cast it early, your opponent trades for it and you don't have enough enough board presence to get a lot of damage out of it. So because it's the last card you cast, you know, you're not really ever playing it early unless you absolutely have to if you need a material to sack to a to a priest but that's kind of like a last ditch ever kind of thing um but you know it, the card it does what it does it does gain a little bit of life it can kill people out of nowhere if you draw two copies or coco into two copies um you know if you have one in play and one in your graveyard you can rebuy the other one with tyvar so it does close the game but it's more of the it's more of the closer it's like closer towards the top end sure so like what you're kind of like setting up a board state that then allows you to play a cutthroat and just get a lot of sort of life loss from your opponent all at once, like kind of like in big chunks. Right. Especially against the removal heavy matchups. You know, if you play like if your curve is, say, you know, let's say you have like a Lazatep Reaver, a Woe Strider, a token, an elf and all these like small, random, unplayable creatures in play that you're none of your opponents don't want to kill those cards. And then you put a cutthroat on the stack. They're like, oh. Well, uh, either, you know, they basically have to kill the Woe Strider on the spot. If you have a second sack out then that doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, it's like they can't respond to the cutthroat 
you know what I mean? It's like they have to use the removal spell, and they can't use it on the cutthroat. And then, you know, if you have another sack outlet, or if you can rebuy the Woe Strider, then you just kind of kill them all in one shot, so. Yeah. We have another similar card to Zulaport Cutthroat, and this is new. This is from Phyrexia All Will Be One, I believe. I sure hope so. I'm going to sound <laughs> yeah, silly it if it's not, but <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, there's Vran, Executioner, Thane. There's three of them in this deck. I feel like this is one of the cards that's slowly been getting more respect from uh, players of this deck, and it's a legendary Phyrexian Vampire. It's a 2 2. Whenever one or more creatures you, you control die, each opponent loses two life and you gain two life, this ability triggers only once each turn. So it's another kind of, you know, Zulaport-y, sacrifice-y kind of effect, but triggers only once each turn, I think makes people afraid of this card. It seems pretty underwhelming. But what? how do you feel like this card actually plays out in practice? And myself included, I was one of those people. I don't know. I don't know if you guys talk about. I don't remember you guys talking about this one during spoiler season. Oh, no, um, I think we. Like, I think we were just kind of like, yeah, it seems kind of mopey. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm pretty sure you know you probably read it and you said the same thing that I did. You read that last line of text and it immediately turns once you off turn. of it once each turn. But the thing about it is, it's once each turn, not once each turn cycle. And if you have a sack outlet in play, yeah, like yeah. a priest or a woe strider, you can get the two on your turn and the two on their turn. So it's effectively for each turn cycle. So that's the important part about it. It wouldn't be playable without sack outlets. Um, the nice thing about this is if you're, it's better in low resource games than Zulaport is because if you have a Strider and a friend, but not a ton of other stuff to sacrifice and you're like sacrificing one creature each turn cycle to that Strider, then you're getting more damage out of the friend that way, but you're losing less material in the process. So if you're, if you're ahead and you have a massive board, Zulaport's going to be better. But if you're playing those kind of, you know, those one for one games against Rakdos where they're killing all of your stuff and you're lower on resources, Vran's a lot better in those games. Yeah, I feel like it's easy to find yourself like in best case scenario mentality where you're like, yeah, I'm always going to have like four cards to sacrifice to my, you know, to sacrifice. I'm going to get four Zulaport Cutthroat triggers. Isn't that just generally better than Vran? And then you play the games out for real and you're kind of, you know, you're nickel and diming your opponent with like, you know, sacrifice here, sacrifice there. And then just the sheer efficiency of the two life per on Vran just sort of makes up for it, right? Yeah, and, you know, like I said, requiring less material, because if you want to sack one creature, you know, two creatures every turn cycle, you'd be getting, you know, two triggers off of the Zulaport, one on your turn, one on your opponent's, versus the, you know, effectively one eat, one Vran yep. trigger, which is worth two cutthroat triggers, essentially, so. And, you know, it being yeah, a 2-2 like is somewhat relevant as well. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, it does block a little bit better. Um, it It's it's a legendary, so it's potentially a drawback there. But I feel like this is the card I've seen from move from like, you know, one or two copies up to kind of three, I think is where people are saying, yeah, like I like Vran enough. I like Vran as my engine piece that it's going to just, it's going to go in there. I want, I want one on the board. I want to play the fourth copy too. I'm thinking about it. I mean, how bad can it be? It's a removal target. Like, you know, it's, the it's nice and thing I think is, this is the kind of thing too. Like if you play it, and the legendary like you know tr thing goes on the trigger goes on the stack then you just sacrifice the other one yep i was just going to say that yeah if you even if you don't have a sack outlet if you legend rule keep the new like if, even if you've already triggered the first that's another important part if you have it like okay so if you have a vran you've triggered it and you play a second vran and you keep the new vran that uh, new vran is still going to trigger yeah and it's going to trigger yeah. off of the legend rule dying from the other one so that's fine with me i would i would play four let's just do it let's just try it out now 
Let's leave up. Let's, let's get in the. You want to fire up a online. league? Is that is that the new the new podcast concept? Yeah, We're going to play leagues on the podcast. Let's see. <laughs> what's that opening sound that happens every time you patch? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, you play you know, with like, sounds? You know, you no, would, I can't play with sounds. No, no. Like it, it, you, you turn sounds off, and then every time you patch and you oh, load it up again, yeah. Then like the sound forces are back. it onto you. <laughs> I don't, man. And the foil animation. Um, okay, so there's our there's kind of our engine pieces. We got our priests. We got our cutthroats. We got our vrans. Let's talk about our fodder makers. Four woe strider. Again, these are cards like I, I know them for some reason. Like maybe I played them in limited. Maybe I played them like in early pioneer decks. But like I feel like people don't even know what this card does anymore. It's two and a black, three, two, creature horror. And when it ETBs, it makes a zero, one white goat creature token. Here's the important part, or one of the most important parts. Sacrifice another creature, scry one. That's it. It has just a static ability to sacrifice another creature. You don't have to pay any mana. You don't have to tap it. It's just a sacrifice engine. And then also another important thing, the escape clause. Three black, black, exile four cards from your graveyard. So you have the four cards right. And then it escapes with two plus one plus one counters on it. Makes two bodies. Gives you that instant speed sacrifice ability. The scry one is great just to get you through your deck, find the needed cards when you're also kind of doing what you want to be doing, which is sacrificing. The escape helps you grind. Uh, I just feel like, you know, when I watched you play the, the full league of this deck, like I saw you escape it like a surprising number of times. Yeah, it comes up a lot, especially because there's going to be situations where you have like let's say you have you're playing a little bit of a longer game and you have priest but you top back a woe strider and you want to activate the priest but you have nothing else in play then you can just go you know priest sacrifice the woe strider and the go token make two black and then you probably have three other mana to be able to just immediately escape the uh, woe strider yeah. um very important against rakdos because again the games get grindy they kill all your stuff really important to be able to escape that and yeah, it just comes up a decent amount because of the fact that, you know, Priest makes two, Tyvar untap Priest, that's four mana right there. It, it doesn't really require a ton of extra mana to be able to uh, to be able to escape it. And just being able to leverage the ability to sacrifice the Woe Strider itself to the Priest can be important. Now, uh, sacrifice outlets are so important in this deck that, you know, specifically ones that don't require additional mana, unconditional sack outlets. So a priest yeah. is good, but you have to tap it. It's limited. You can only sack two things. I've actually been considering playing one or two copies of Nantuko Husk, even though yeah. the sacrifice ability is not terribly relevant. It's, you know, three mana, two, two, sack a creature, get plus two, plus two until it's a turn. Just the ability to just put stuff into your graveyard is really important in this deck. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like, the, I, I remember, like, in... You know, sacrifice deck construction, it's really all about finding the sacrifice enablers where it's like, what do I not have to pay for? What can I do at instant speed? What can I do in response to my opponent targeting my creatures with removal by casting a wrath against me? And Wosar just ensures you against so many of those situations where it's like, yeah, I'm going to lose all my stuff. I'm going to get a lot of value out of it in the meantime. Yeah, Watsi, if you're listening, please give us Goblin Bombardment and Pioneer. All right, and then we're talking about some some truly innocuous seeming cards. In I guess that's what we were forced to run in Pioneer. We've got Lazatep Reaver, one in the black, one two. When it ETBs, you amass one. If you remember this uh, mechanic, it makes basically it makes a zombie army creature token with a one one counter on it. So the idea is, if you had other amass creatures, 
that would amass one, amass two, you would add counters to your existing zombie army. It's, so it's a single creature token that gets larger with amassing. Uh, that's not really what you're doing here. You're not really going to amass a large army. You just want to have two creatures, two bodies, two pieces of cardboard, uh, or digital cardboard, if you're playing a Magic Online, for two mana. Right, yeah, that's the most important part. I was, uh, I'm sorry, I was typing in the background. I just wanted to see. I looked up War of the Spark draft orders to see about <laughs> where it was in the draft order, and it said it's in the tier of sometimes playable. So sometimes playable, wow. limited, but perfect for our deck and constructed. Yeah, the most important part about this is two bodies. Um, a mass is awkward where if you have the army token in play and you play a second reaver, it doesn't work. You know, you just get a plus one plus one counter. So ideally, you want to utilize yep. that that token before you play a second reaver. But yeah, two mana, two bodies, you know, the stats don't matter too much, just material on the battlefield. That's all we're looking for here. Sure. And then this is a new addition. It was not in your deck list on your VOD from like about 10 days ago or so. Two Cult Conscript, which is just a black 2-1 skeleton warrior, ETBs tapped, so kind of what, like a gutter bones type thing. But for one in the black, you can return it from your graveyard to the battlefield, and you can activate this only if a non-skeleton creature died under your control this turn. So I feel like, what, this is just a cheap recursive creature and doesn't require you like to attack, right? So this is just kind of like value. It doesn't require you to get damage in. doesn't require the opponent to lose life. It's just like, hey, I'm getting this back pretty easily. Yes, so this card is a, a somewhat recent addition, and there's a couple of things going on here. So entering the battlefield tapped, a little bit awkward because I can't block the turn that you play it. The really nice thing, there's a couple of things going on here. First and foremost, the ability on it, a lot of times you'll see this on these you know creatures that return from the graveyard. A lot of them only trigger on your turn. So you think like, uh, what's the one with raid? It's like Bloodsoak Champion where you attack. Obviously, you're not exactly. attacking your opponent's turn unless something weird's going on. Um, but because yeah. this can return to the battlefield on your opponent's turn, you can say oh, uh, man. in combat, you can go block with it, tap the priest, sack it. And then you would get the thing about it, too, is you get two mana from priest. So it works out perfectly where you get the two mana from priest, which you can then you wouldn't normally be able to use mana on your opponent's turn. But you can use the two yeah. mana right into the conscripts. And it worked. It's just so perfect with priest, because if you don't have extra stuff to do with that mana, just return the cult conscript and you can do it over and over again. So in the instance where you go like priest sack conscript you know do the thing two mana get it back tyvar untap priest priest sack conscripts get two more mana two mana bring it back you just it, it just like i i've i'm in love with the card i kind of want to play a third yeah that makes total sense like i didn't catch that part because you know in my mind like like you said i'm comparing it to, to blood soak champion i'm comparing it to gutter bones and then you look at it and you're like oh wait, this just makes so much sense with what the rest of my deck is doing, especially with your powerful you know, Priest of Forgotten Gods like board setups, where like you said, I'm getting the mana anyway. This just lets me have a really nice recursive piece of, you know, a piece of cardboard that lets me do what I want to be doing. And I think that makes, that's, yeah, it's great. I love it. Let's talk about Coco, because I feel like this is a big get for this deck over some other sacrifice decks we could collect a company you know value and selection the classic reason that one would play collect a company you can cheat on mana you get like five or six mana's worth of cards for four but i think it's really more important potentially for this deck is it gets you a needed piece of the puzzle right like whether it's a sacrifice engine like a cutthroat 
or like a fodder maker, like your Wostrider, it gets the ball rolling. Like Coco allows you to find those. And like for a deck like this, like breaking on lands for a few turns or, you know, getting like a card, you, a creature you just really don't care about when you just really need to like, you know, to have two bodies. Yeah, I think this makes so much sense in the deck and it just is a really big reason to be in a strategy like this, right? Right. You know, um, like, you know, Racto Sacrifice is a deck that people have played in the past, but that deck doesn't have green cards and collect a company. And whenever a deck has collected company in it, it's always going to be the best card in the deck. And there's, this is no yeah. difference here. This is, you know, far and away the best card. Um, like you said, just the, the selection is the kind of the most important part. If you have a Wostrider and you're missing a priest, you can have a Tyvar in play, which gives you priest haste anyways. So just, you know, not a ton else to say about this card, but it's just so, so good. Particularly important, like you said here against the, uh, the control decks, just being able to hold up collected company gives you more, just more flexibility, more selection. It's just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of decks don't want to play against collected company in this format, like, you know, Rakdos doesn't want to see the value, doesn't want to see your you select the right cards that it then has to deal with later with more removal. Control decks don't want you to recover from their wrath. They don't want you to be playing, you know, at their end step necessarily. You know, you can get counter magic out of their hands and then untap and play other stuff that you you know, also perfectly happy casting. So, you know, Coco is a card that I've loved casting for years. And I mean whoever whoever casts Coco loves casting it. I mean that's just that's just a fundamental truth of magic, I feel like, at this point. Well, except for when you take six lands and put them in the bottom of your library. But <laughs> the upside is you have to remember when that happens, you're not drawing six lands in a row. So there's always yeah. a positive. I mean, how many car how many creatures do you play in this deck? We're playing twenty-nine. Our odds are very good to uh to hit creatures. Why? Because it's like a what, like it's like around thirty creatures you want to be playing in like a cocoa deck typically, right? Yeah, thirty we're, to thirty two. Yeah. We're close enough. Yeah, I, I. So what's funny is I in, in your the deck list that you played a couple weeks ago, there was a Singleton Bastion of Remembrance, which is what like an in, a two and a black enchantment version of like a Zulaport Cutthroat that also gave you like a one one human creature. And and you were saying uh, this is a little bit overcooked. We're not playing this card. <laughs> a little bit overcooked. I mean, it's. I, I thought it was good in theory as a one of because the nice thing is uh, specifically against Rakdos mid range, they don't. They're not really good at removing enchantments from the battlefield exactly um the issue is it's not a coco hit so i think i'd rather just have a 30th yeah. coco hit either the third conscripts or the fourth fran um probably would lean towards the third conscripts but yeah i think that's more important yeah. as, uh, as an additional coco hit i mean that that gets into like one of the things that i think a lot about when i'm looking at deck lists like these or playing with them is like what is the balance that i'm hoping for in the stuff I'm sacrificing and the things I'm using to sacrifice, right? Where it's like a lot of the a lot of the times the balance isn't, you know, it's not a one-one ratio because you're hoping to sacrifice the sacrifice engines, you know, the sacrifice fodder perhaps more often than than, than anything else. So it's like, well, do I want more of those? And do I hope my opponent's not going to remove the the engine pieces? I need to stay on the board for me to do anything at all. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that we've seen be iterated upon over the past like four weeks of this deck's existence is kind of like what makes sense what what feels right about the balance here how are these games playing out have you noticed anything in kind of the the games you're playing where it's like i wish i had more of x and less of y and you've adjusted 
Um, it happened a little bit more when I was playing the version with Bulls' Citadel, because I trimmed on Coco Hits a little bit to make room for the Citadels. I think the list that I played had yeah. four Tyvar, th- I think I even trimmed a Coco. The first thing was like four Tyvar, three Coco, three Citadel, or something along those lines. And I think I even might have trimmed a land. But the issue with, with doing stuff like that is when you start trimming lands or you start trimming Coco Hits, then you just make your deck a little bit more inconsistent. So... I think yeah. at the end of the day, you're adding a little bit of power, but you're kind of taking too much away from the rest of the cards in the deck. And, and this whole entire deck is just big, it's solely based on synergy. It's just the most synergistic yeah. deck in the format. So when you start having these like hands that are a little more anemic, that have too many pieces of, of X and not enough pieces of Y... Um, and especially if not enough lands, then you end up in these spots where those the powerful cards that you're adding don't actually accomplish anything because you, they don't work and they, you can't cast them. So, yeah, right on. I guess we'll briefly talk about the mana. Like, so this deck isn't hugely mana hungry and has eight mana elves. So you can play around like twenty two lands or so. I think has looked really good. Has it been good in your experience? I think 22 is right. The reason that I like 22 a lot is because I frequently will will just sacrifice my elves to priest if I untap with priest. So that's why I don't mind. Like, I think the correct number of lands with this curve and elves is probably 21. Um, But the reason, there's two reasons, again, as we talked about, um, just, you know, I like sacrificing the elves to priest. And then the other thing is the 22nd land is that Westvale Abbey, which is, you know, another mana sink. Yeah. Yeah, I think... It's important in a deck like this, especially in a format like Pioneer, right? Where it's like your mana dorks are dying a lot, I think. And whether whether it's by your own hand or by your opponent's removal spells. And so I think like it's really valuable to like not get greedy in your mana. And like, you know, the more I hear experienced players talk about deck building, they're always like, let's just add some more land. Let's just make this deck run more consistent. I mean, there's mana sinks in this deck. There's a lot of stuff that you can do. And the mana in this deck, I think, is quite good. You get the full play set of fast lands, pathways, pain lands, and shocks. Uh, it's, I mean, the, the pathways do seem like the worst uh, land in the deck. That's not a basic because, like, it's you know, you, you very often are like, this is like takes me back to playing like uh, Gruel Aggro in Standard a long time ago, where it's like, I want turn one Elvish Mystic, turn two, you know, something with green red pips, where it's like, I have to have green turn one and red turn two, or I'm screwed. And there's a lot of reasons that that wouldn't happen. But here, the mana just seems so good. Uh, you get, you know, you get a few basics. You get tech lands like Takanuma, like Boseju. In your list, I see an Urborg and a Westvale Abbey, and I feel like Westvale Abbey. All you have to do is get to five creatures and five extra mana, and Westvale Abbey seems pretty reasonable, right? Yeah, I think in the challenge and the couple leagues that I played the Abbey in, I think I've only activated, I haven't gotten to flip Ormondon. I think I've only made like one or one or two tokens off of it. It doesn't come up that often, um, but hmm. there were, you know, several games where if I put myself in a position where, you know, if I, if I was able to draw it, that I would have been able to make an Ormondon. You know, it's one of those things that it's rarely going to come up, but when it comes up, it's the difference between, you know, flooding out and just winning the game on the spot. The one thing that I that sure. I will say about the pathways, um, if you look at the deck list, it's almost like a mono black deck splashing elves. So yeah, the exactly. pathways are are a little a little sketchy in this deck, but I, I think you do want to play them. Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, I don't know what else you do. I mean, you're going to play some what some more basics. There's there's no, no no other like you're not going to play a slow land or check land or anything like that. So 
is there any consideration of something like Castle Lockthwain here, where it's just like, I need more cards, and I have mana, and I have time? Or do you think like the other tech lands, like Takanuma or something like that, or, or an Urborg are just better? I think if you wanted to play a card like Castle Lockthwain, you'd probably have to cut the Westvale Abbey. I don't really see... The Urborg is important to make your green pathways tap for black. The Basaju and the Takanuma, I think, are too important, and I think you want one of each basic. So, um, yeah, the only thing I could consider cutting is, is uh, the Westville Abbey. But the other, the other thing about Castle is you really only have six swamps in this deck. You have four tombs, a basic, and an Urborg. So, yeah. it's not, you know, it's it's not coming. It's not guaranteed to come into play on tap, which is kind of awkward. Yeah, that's a good thing to remember. Is like, yeah, the 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 tapping nature. Like, all I think about is, oh, what's my ongoing value here? But not like, how bad is this hindering my initial curve if I can't, if I'm not able to play it? So, yeah, good call. Yeah, and curving out with this deck is so important. So let's briefly talk about the sideboard. I think we can talk more about the sideboard when we talk about kind of mashup stuff. So we've got typically it's pretty uh, streamlined where you have a, a Gigantha uh, as the companion. You run like four Fatal Push, four Thoughtseize, three Canker Bloom, three Scavenging News. My kind of sideboard, very to the point, uh, very targeted. You know, you don't have a lot of uh, odds and ends. Just like, what do I want to do when I'm facing uh, certain types of decks and I'm going to bring these things in? How important is uh, Jingatha in this deck, do you think? Jing- Jingatha. Is it, should we just call it Jenga from now on? <laughs> <laughs> we like the soft J sometimes here on the pod. It's just Jingatha. I think it's pretty important. There are a couple of games, especially because the ability of Priest of Forgotten Gods jumps you up the curve a little bit. So you could imagine a spot where it's like turn four or turn five, you activate a priest, all of a sudden you just have eight mana. <laughs> and that's enough to just pick up and play Jam yeah. in the same turn. So I think it's pretty important. It mostly comes up against Rakdos. Uh, when you're racing, it's not terribly important, but the, it can be the difference between winning and losing against Rakdos. Yeah, that's like you have the room. Clearly, this is not a sideboard that like has a, a, a bunch of little random one ofs. So I feel like those are the kind of sideboards you can usually find the room for. You know, a card as powerful as any playable companion that's unbanned still is. Okay, so we talked a lot about kind of the makeup of the deck, like how you're thinking about some of these cards. Like, let's talk about actually playing this out. And like, I think one of the first things that I like to think about when I'm picking up a new deck is what am I looking for in my opening hands? Like, what are the kind of things that you're doing when you're making your mulligan decisions? So I kind of like to break the deck down into like a couple of categories. So the first one is the power cards. These are Tyvar, Priest of Forgotten Gods, Woe Strider, Collected Company. These are kind of like the cards that are going to lead you to the most amount of wins because they they generate the most amount of value and they actually, you know, contribute towards, um, toward, they're just like cards that either provide multiple things, multiple resources, um, or just, just your most powerful cards. Then the supporting cast, which are like your elves, your lazateps, and your constructs, uh, kind of conscripts, excuse me. So your, uh, the foundation where in the case of elves, where you're, you know, jumping the curve, you're building a foundation of a mana base and then you have the lazatep reavers and conscripts which are the stuff that help fuel your power cards stuff like pre stuff like strider and then the finishers which are the vrans and the zula ports um these you really don't necessarily 
want to see those in your opening hand, those you'd rather see like turn three, turn four, or off of a Coco. The most important thing is you want, you can't really keep a hand that doesn't have a power card. Like if my hand doesn't have Tybar, Priest, Strider, or Coco, there's almost no circumstance I would keep that hand. So you want to at least have one to two of those cards. Um, some foundation to build upon. It could be elves. It could be like... If you have a Tyvar, you want Elves. If you have a Priest, then you want Lazatep, stuff like that. You want whatever puzzle piece you're missing to match the the, the power card that you have. Um, so yeah, those are kind of, uh, that, that's kind of what you're looking for. Yeah, that makes total sense. So like, I feel like it's tempting in a deck like this to be like, I have a Mana Elf, and I have a turn, I have a turn three play, right? Or like, oh, I, or I can cast, you know, two, two drops on turn three or something like that. But I think like, you're you're totally spot on which is like i need my pieces to work together it's like a it's a synergy deck and just keeping those synergies in mind because like you said like you can quickly find yourself in a in a place where you're just like well uh i have a couple one ones and a couple more one one tokens or i have i have a two two uh zombie army and i'm not very happy with myself Yeah, like, for example, imagine an opening hand that's like Llanowar Elves, Lazatep Reaver, Vran, Zulaport Cutthroat, three lands. That's a hand that has lands yeah. and spells, but it literally doesn't do anything. Yeah, and so, and the, what are you looking for in that particular situation? I'd be looking for six cards. <laughs> oh, and, and so, I'm, I'm, if I remember the cards you said, I didn't hear a Sacrifice Engine card in there. Nothing that actually yeah, sacrificed, right? That's they, basically yeah. that hand was just two finishers and two supporting casts. And the thing is, is that yeah. hand just doesn't go anywhere. You know, you can't you yeah. can't afford to keep a hand like that because the, your cards like your power cards are great. But you it, you could like in theories like justify keeping what's well, like, well, what if I draw the power card? Um, but what if you draw the wrong power card? Like you keep that hand and you draw a Tyvar. Tyvar is not that great with that hand, you know, cause you don't really, you know what I mean? It's like, you want to make sure that yep. you have the right supporting cast to go with the right power card. Cause you're the, the, the piece of the puzzle got to fit together. Yeah. Especially in a deck like this, where all of your creatures are pretty underpowered. So you're relying on the damage not coming through the combat step, but coming through just their innate abilities and like static text and things like that. Right. Exactly. So, so what does like the game look like for you? Like, I know it's of course going to depend on the hand, but like, how do most games that you're playing with this deck seem to play out? So, the I think the best start that you can possibly have is turn one elf, turn two Tyvar. Nothing is really going to top yeah. that. Uh, the reason for that is you don't have to expose your other pieces early to removal like if you go elf into priest yes that's powerful but you're exposing yourself to the fatal pushes to the bone crusher giants of the world whereas yeah. if you go you know if you're on the plane you go elf into tyvar you, they, maybe they kill your elf you don't really care because you're going to untap a tyvar and you have you know you can maybe go like play an elf play a priest do some stuff there um also like Tyvar allowing you to play multiple elves. You can go like turn one elf, turn two Tyvar, untap your elf, play another elf, uh, you know, keep going, just put as much stuff onto the battlefield. Um, and then sometimes where like the games where you don't have Tyvar, then you're kind of like maybe nothing on turn one. You kind of will, if you have a Tyvar, then you probably can afford to, like my general philosophy is if I have Tyvar in hand and I'm not feeling like I'm going to be under pressure, like if I don't have to close out yeah. the game quickly um, and I'm playing against like Rakdos or something, I'm going to wait a turn to play that priest. Like if my hand, let's say my hand is like, 
you know, let's say it's uh, it's on, I'm on turn two, I can play a Reaver or a Priest, but I have a Tyvar in my hand. I'm going to play Reaver that turn mm-hmm. because then I can go turn three Tyvar and then wait until I have the Tyvar on the battlefield to play the Priest. Um, if exactly. I don't have Tyvar, then I'll usually play the Priest and just kind of cross my fingers, hope it doesn't die. Um, but little things like that, you know, that's that's kind of what the games look like where you are just trying to kind of amass a bunch of resources, utilize Priest and just kind of kind of go from there. Yeah, so like at some point, do the resources stop mattering as much? Like you know, like so, like what kind of board states are you trying to configure, sort of like mid to end game, where it's like, is it kind of like we talked about before in the Zulaport Cutthroat area, where it's like, hey, if I have like four pieces of cardboard and a woe strider, and I'm sort of like trying to set up a, a, a position where maybe I'm, you know, I'm activating activating priests of forgotten gods, like. And then I am hoping to use Woe Strider to, or using Woe Strider to like eventually draw into like a finishing piece, like Azula Port or something like that. Like, how do you get the opponent like really down from twenty to zero in a in a deck where your creatures have like literally one and two power? So this is where we get to everybody's favorite part of the part of the podcast where we talk about math. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, give me some uh, math. King wants some math. Well, essentially, what you're trying to do is basically you want to activate priest as early and as often as you can. Sometimes, even if your opponent doesn't have a creature in play, I just want to I just want to activate it so I can churn through my deck and find those win conditions. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're getting some chip shot damage. Sometimes you have an early cutthroat. Sometimes you have an early Vran. You're getting a little bit more chip damage in there. But the end game that you're playing towards is you're trying to find a Coco or maybe one or two Zulaport cutthroats, a, you know, mm-hmm. a, just a massive battlefield. And then basically you're just adding up. Can I kill my opponent if I have, you know, Woe Strider, Zulaport and eight or nine creatures is that lethal do yeah. i have a second cutthroat you know what i mean stuff like that that's the end game that you're building towards and really early what you're utilizing is you're utilizing priests to try to keep them uh, keep them off the balance a little bit they have to sacrifice creatures if they have creatures and you're getting chip damage in while kind of keeping them off balance a little bit so that's kind of the the, the short game and then that long game is those finishers like zulaport and fran how do you try to bridge the early to the late mid to late game because i feel like a lot of times you're going to find yourself under particular types of pressure whether it's the pressure from your opponent keeping like what they would hopefully have a decent opening hand that they would bother keeping whether it's enough aggression in like a red deck or enough of a you know synergy with their grease fang or enough kind of creatures and interactive spells and like arachdos are you willing to put creatures into harm's way to like buy you time? Are you willing to kind of like put stuff out there on the battlefield to eat a removal spell and just say, Hey, this cocoa in my hand is going to make up for all of this or something like that. Like, how do you, like, what's your thought process for, you know, getting early to getting mid and then being able to grind? Kind of depends whether or not you're under pressure. Like you, you mentioned example, like if you're playing against the red deck, in yeah. general, I think that you, as long as you can get to those later stages of the games where you start casting Cocos, you start flashing back Woe Striders, you start Tyvar Untap Priest, once you've gotten to that stage of the game, you your deck is a lot better 
better. Like, you just have more powerful cards at that point in the game, so you just want to buy as much time as possible against, like, the White Wheaties and the Mono Reds of the world. Uh, you're playing against Lotus Field, you know, say, Lotus Field, for example, you just need to be as quick as possible, so you just want to have... you Basically, the... And, and that's kind of awkward because your deck can't kill that fast. But if you have, you know, say, like a priest and one or two cutthroats, you can actually, you know, get a somewhat fast kill, uh, especially if you throw a Wostrider in there. So it really all depends on, like, what kind of pressure you're under, whether it's your opponent pressuring your life total or if you're under a time management kind of pressure where that's kind of how you bridge into that. Most of that is all kind of tied by together by Coco, where the nice thing is it's like a perfect mid-game card because it's, you know, right around turn yep. four, and it finds you whatever piece you're missing, or if your opponent has removed, you know, pieces or you've had to block with those pieces, then it can also find those pieces as well. Yeah, that makes good sense. I feel like we're kind of bridging neatly into maybe some, like, matchup and sideboard card discussion. So, like, when... How are you... How are you addressing particular matchups? Like, what are you using some of your sideboard cards? And, like, how do you try to shore, shore up or, you know, take care of some of the more popular decks in the field? So it's going kind of going by the sideboard. The sideboard's pretty pretty cut straightforward. Nothing too fancy going on there. Um, the four thoughts is, is we're want, we want these against spell-based combo. So Lotus Field things like that, and then decks that have counter magic and sweepers. So you think like the, you know, blue-white controls, blue-black controls, the world. Um, because we, Thoughtseize is your best tool against, like, stuff, basically when you're, when you're trying to race, because your deck isn't that great at racing, you just need to kind of take the best piece and try to pick apart their strategy. Yeah. Um, sweepers, you don't necessarily care as much about because you have a lot of backstops against that. Like you have the Woe Striders and you have the Cocos that you can kind of hold up when they when they go for a sweeper. Um, Fatal Push, mostly here for aggressive decks when you're when when they're trying to attack your life total, you want Fatal Push. And also against Rakdos, you kind of want Fatal Push for Graveyard Trespasser. That's probably the scariest mm -hmm. part of the Rakdos matchup is because that card it can mess with Tyvar in the sense of they can just get your priest or whatever the best card in your graveyard is at that time, and it also exiles Woestrider, which is one of your most important cards against Rakdos. Uh, Canker Bloom is here mostly for Mono Green because you got to kill Pithing Needle. The way that the Mono Green matchup is tough. The way that you beat them is just priest over and over and over and over and over again. Um, okay. And you need to be able to canker bloom. To keep their needle. battlefield empty. Yeah. Well, and you can also try to race them because their deck isn't that great at like removing creatures from the battlefield. If you just have a priest and an early cutthroat, you pair that with a couple other creatures, you can you can drain them out pretty quickly. Um, so that's kind yeah, of sort of like there. block, sacrifice, after block, stuff like that, unless they have the tramplers. Right. Yeah, and then lastly, Scavenging Ooze is here for Phoenix and Grease Fang, just graveyard strategies. It's the best thing that you can play against graveyard because it's a Coco hit, so I think it's the most important yeah. one. Makes total sense. So how are you feeling against the the field out there? Like, What kind of decks do you think you have? Good matchups, great matchups, terrible ones? Because that helps people kind of plan, like, hey, do I want to bring this into my local meta like, or into a perceived meta, like an, an RCQ or something like that? Like, how, how do you feel this deck stacks up? So the matchup that you're probably going to encounter the most is Rakdos, which is a good thing, because I think the Rakdos matchup is favorable. Um, yeah, I mean, decks the like this typically is, are, right? Like, you have a lot of yes. cardboard, a lot of things they got to deal with. Right, yeah, Rakdos Sacrifice always had a good matchup against Rakdos mid-range. Maybe, well, I guess that's not necessarily true, because they used to play Kalidus. 
But thankfully, yeah. they printed this card called Shielded, and nobody plays Kalidus anymore. So as long as <laughs> yeah. people don't start playing Kalidus, then you're fine. So yeah, I think I like that matchup. The downside is Mono Green is kind of a sketchy matchup. Um, I have played it, I think, six or seven times now. I think I've won once. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to be as bad early because, like, if they keep a hand that's reliant on elves, you have the priest, and they're not really good at removing priests from the battlefield. The issue is when they keep hands that go turn two haven, turn three Karn for needle. You can't. Your priest isn't interacting with those draws, and it's really hard to beat them when you can't activate priest because it's hard for your like to churn through your deck and generate the mana that you need to. Um, Blue white control. I think it's a close matchup. I have even on here. Uh, it you, maybe it's like slightly in their favor, but again, you have Woe Striders, you have collected companies, you have a lot of value against them. So I think yeah. that matchup is okay. Grease Fang, incredibly good matchup. The reason is all you have to do against Grease Fang, just take Priest and just never tap it on your turn. <laughs> as long as you just leave yeah. your Priest in play, it's really hard for them to ever go for a Grease Fang, especially post-board once you have Fatal Push to clear their other smaller creatures, because sometimes they can have like uh, Seder Wayfinder or Rafine's Informant into Grease Fang to, to kind of have like a, a body blocker. Yeah. But post-board, you get Fatal Push for that too. Uh, boats, another really good reason to play this deck. You have a very good Boats matchup. Just, again, your lineup of Priest and whatnot against their Elves, it's, you know, it's it's a tough matchup for Boats. Lotus Field, I don't really know how yeah. you ever beat this deck in a million years. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote down on here, please dodge. Uh, yeah, you just, you, you don't really have a fast enough clock against Lotus Field. So, if you got a lot of Lotus Field, don't play this deck. Creativity, that's another matchup that I don't have a ton of experience in. The one cool thing about the Creativity matchup, similar to the Grease Fang matchup, is, now, it's a lot tougher against Creativity because they have, you know, eight, nine, ten ways to kill your Priest. But, Dream World, Dream Scenario, if you have Priest in play, and you have it untapped on their turn, and they go for Xenagos Worm, then you just Priest them, they sack their Worm, and you don't take 30 damage. Now, the issue mm-hmm. is you still have to beat three five fives, which may, <laughs> I might, I might be a little tough, but, you know, you cannot die to their, you know, worm shenanigans. Um, Mono White Humans, I wrote down here, if you lose to this deck, something went wrong. I stand by that statement. You shouldn't lose to Mono White with this deck. Again, Priest of the Forgotten Gods lines up very well against small white creatures. So, Yeah, sack, sack decks against aggro decks is where you want to be. Right, exactly. You want to play against the decks that have, you know, Thalia, because Thalia is not really taxing much in this deck. Maybe a Tyvar here and there. Um, I think Phoenix is very close, and then I think Angels is also very, very good. So that's kind of like the the, the ten most played archetypes, and and how your how your favorite. So all in all, I think you're as long as you can dodge Lotus Field and Mono Green, and then maybe Creativity. I like most of the matchups after that. Sweet. So why are you, you know why are you playing this deck? Why do you think people should play this deck? I guess especially when Rakdos Sack already exists, right? Like so, why why do you think people are drawn to this particular deck, and why do you think that it might have the chops to be a legitimate you know, deck in the format? So, um, kind of the the base level answer is collect a company is a best up card as I'm sure yeah, good card. listeners may be aware, when you cast that card, and if you put th- two three-drops into play, you feel like a genius. Um, the kind of deeper answer, so compared to Rakdos Sacrifice specifically, I know we talked about during the podcast, uh, during this episode, how we don't, like, this deck can't really kill that fast, but compared to Rakdos Sacrifice, 
you know, Racto Sacrifice is almost killing glacially slow compared to this deck. Because between okay. the Vrans and the Zulaports and the uh, Sack Outlets with Woe you can get some relatively fast kills. I think I might have killed somebody on, like, turn... F- I, I, I don't remember if I killed somebody on turn four. It's rare. But you can kill people on, like, turn four, turn five. Whereas I think that, like, Unimpeded Racto Sacrifice maybe has a little bit less of those draws because they don't have Cocos to find the Zulaports and the Vrans. But that's kind of the biggest reason, I think, is also Priest of Forgotten Gods. A lot better. Like, Racto Sacrifice has a horrible matchup against Monogreen. I think this deck actually has a slightly better matchup or more of a chance just because of Priest of Forgotten Gods. That's how important that card is. Awesome. Yeah, I think this this deck is really intriguing to me. I think that it's one of those decks that I just need a few reps to like feel comfortable like with the sequencing, with kind of setting up the board states, because I'm so used to just being like, okay, I understand this combo deck, or I understand this aggressive deck. Like I really get the A to B progression of what cards like I need to cast in what order, when I need to be attacking, things like that. Uh, but with uh, these synergy-based decks that just sort of grind, I feel like you can make some mistakes that cost you the game that aren't as obvious, perhaps, right? Where it's like, oh, man, I, I should have waited one more turn to do that, or I could have gotten three damage there instead of two damage, and then my opponent's at one and I'm dead, or something like that, right? And I think there's a lot of like small edges that you need to be aware of and like sort of develop with your, your practice over time. And that's pretty fun and valuable. And then a lot of people aren't prepared necessarily for decks like this, where not a lot I feel is lights out against you. Like, sure. There's certain cards you probably don't want to see like a pithing needle in mono green or something like that, but people aren't hedging their entire strategies or their sideboards against you. So I feel like you, you're, you're attacking on a unique angle and a lot of the pieces in your deck are are not so obviously dangerous besides maybe Priest, or the opponent's like, well, I know exactly what I have to do to stop what they're doing. Yeah, one good thing about this deck, too, is the downtick. There's been a slight downtick in Rest in Peace recently. Now, you can beat that card. You have some, like, you have Priest that can still work. But one thing is pre- Rest in Peace does shut off both Sulaport Cutthroat and Fran. So it kind of mitigates how fast you can actually kill, so you got to be a little bit careful there. But yeah, I think like uh, as far as, you know, like I said, we talked about the 10 most popular decks. I think that I like my matchup against at least seven of them, six or seven of them. So not not a bad place to be, especially if uh, people are not respecting Phoenix as much because Phoenix has been on the downtick, less graveyard hate than, you know, stuff like that. So Awesome. Well, Devin... I feel like we have focused on this deck enough. My understanding is that Stan and Dave went for a good amount of time, so I don't want to push this episode to uh, unheard of time limits. So thanks again for coming on, our regular guest host, Devin O'Donnell. Devin, you're a full-time streamer. I think like a lot of people know where to find you, but uh, where can people watch you stream a lot of Pioneer these days? Twitch.tv slash Doomwake, D-0-0-M-W-A-K-E. Also Twitter and YouTube, both Doomwake as well. And it's been a pleasure to be here, Shane. I thank you very much for the time and uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have you on soon. 
And with that, we're going to wrap this show up. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the pod. You get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, please feel free to leave us a rating or a review over there. If you want to chat at us, if you want to submit a question, reach out. You can tweet towards us, tweet at us, uh, at the dive down, all one word. Email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you want to support us, you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash thedivedown. You can also check out our merch store at thedivedown.com slash store. You can use Mana Traders to sign up for your subscription there. You can use promo code thedivedown10 for 10% off your first two months of branding uh, Magic Online cards. Of course, amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, all that good stuff at Barrister and Man using code thedivedown2023 for 15% off your first order. Save some money on paper cards with our friends over at Nerd Rage Gaming. Dive 8, 8% off your order there. Thanks Nowhere, thanks Spaceblood for letting us use your music for these past four plus years. And until next week, get out there and sacrifice a zombie army! Zombie army!